Welcome to the Roman Nation study for Parashat Korach. And it is Chodesh Tammuz. And that is exciting. And it's also unnerving at the same time because what a month. <laughs> we have just as much potential for amazingness as we do for tragedy. So may we proceed with caution and may we anticipate the three weeks being the ultimate tikkun where we will see the Mashiach. But right now, we're going to say this, Brock. <laughs> Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kirishanu B'Metzvotah B'Tzibanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah Ve'harevna Adonai Eloheinu Et Divrei Torah Teka Be'finu Ufiamka Beit Yisrael Venie anachnu vetze etze enu vetze etze e. Amka beit Yisrael. Kulano yodea shemeka velam de torateka lishma. Baruch ata adonai hamlamet torah leamo Yisrael. Mashiach now. Mashiach now. Mashiach now. Let's go. All right, Shlomo. May it be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me. And may I not stumble in the matter of Torah and cause my colleagues to rejoice over me. And may I not say regarding something which is to me that it is to whore, and not regard something which is to whore that it is to me. And may my colleagues not stumble in the matter of Torah and I rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. 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 Uh, this is one rumination that gets people worked up. <laughs> oh, like Korak? <laughs> he was all yeah. worked up. Because we can get worked up. It is so easy to do, but we have to remember. Before you get worked up, look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or as the Torah Wellspring said this week, fill your mouth with water. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. Uh, okay. Here, can I just share that real sexy. quick? Because I, I just feel like that's like begging for more information. <laughs> There's a second part to that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's see. Let's go with uh, here. Yep. All right. This is to push off a makloket, which is a, a dispute. And remember, those can be for the sake of heaven or not for the sake of heaven. But here we go. The Rebbe of Lelov, Zikron Zadik Livracha, say, or the Rebbe's, oh wow, all of them, so yes, may all of their memories be blessed, uh, that, they, that when you are tempted to become angry and to make a mock locate, put water in your mouth and don't swallow it. This is a segula to prevent mock locate. Yeah, so anyway. Fill your mouth with words of Torah. Right. Because the Torah is referred to as water, living water. Yeah. 
because see the beautiful thing we talk about the layers of Torah, the faces of Torah. It's just a Prashat level, but also there's the soul level. Yeah. So. That's right. Yep. The other thing uh, water can represent too is like your um, it's representative of nullification because of the waters of the mikvah. We talked about this last week, actually, that it means tabal is what you do in a mikvah. You immerse, which is the same word as betul. So when you think about putting water in your mouth, it's like you're going to mikvah your mouth. So you want to you want to nullify the words of your mouth. You know. Yeah, Which make I mean, sure the pure words come out of your mouth. Yeah. Uh, Yaakov's letter where he says, should bitter water and fresh water come from the same spring? <laughs> it can't happen. It's one or the other. That's right. <laughs> Check your spring. Uh, Matthew 15. Yeah. What does the master say there? It's not that which goes in that oh. makes you convey. It's what comes that which comes out and what comes from the heart. And guess what he's doing there? He's offering a drosh on Proverbs. Nice. <laughs> you mean this fancy little book? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> For the power of life and death is in the tongue. And Man. James says, Yaakov, oh, what a great fire this little member starts. And we're not supposed to kindle a flame on Shabbat. No, Mark Lokit. And that was reading that in Torah Wellsprings. And he says the Yetzirah works overtime on the day of preparation to get husband and wife fighting. Right. That's his job. And the Satan is right there just egging it on, man. I'm like, oh, my. Watch out. <laughs> right. And it's actually um, to give us much merit for overcoming it. Because anytime we have those challenges and we we make it through, you know, we actually get an extra level of like spiritual juice, if you will. So it's it's not easy, that's for sure. But, you know, you think about the level up that happens, you know, we talk about the word for test being nasa, which means to lift, you know, like when Hashem asked Abraham to sacrifice Yitzhak. Which he actually didn't, but that's another drosh for another time. Um, Abraham was like, "Oh yeah, sure, let's let's just go, let's go do it." It's only the hardest thing I have to do in my life, you know. <laughs> but yeah, so just just know that when we uh, have those challenges, especially on Arab Shabbat, when you're already freaking out about trying to get to candle lighting, um, that that's a part of it. Hashem's like, no, Matt uh, uses that you. word in his gospel referring to when Yeshua was tested. What, freaking out? No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. Use the word Nasa, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was freaking out. That's a biblical word. <laughs> um, Goodness. Okay, yeah. real quick. This okay. is Rabbi Hirsch. Both the highest Yeshua, which is salvation, 
and the worst misfortune depend on the tongue. Among the faculties with which man is endowed, none is as valuable as the ability to use words. Think about that. Out of all the possible abilities we can have, it's like your words, your mouth. Even if you're a person who is physically disabled, you don't have any kind of supernatural skills, talents, or ability. It's like, well, what about your mouth? What's coming out of it? That's crazy amazing, you know? Uh, it says, no other can instantly augment or decrease the light of truth, justice, morality, shalom, and happiness. Ooh. Thank God. <laughs> All right, I'll stop mouthing well, that, out. Okay, yeah, I just picked up Miktav Me'aliyahu. Okay. So now I'm going to read what he says about Korach. And he starts off with what appears to be... Can I see the book? There. Can I see the book of Miktav oh, sure. Ooh, fancy. Nice. So, the fox and the lion. Oh, yes. My dear pupils... I started writing to you several times, but had to stop. I was unwell the first few days, but even now that I feel better, thank God, it is still difficult to write. The movement of the ship makes my hand unsteady. I want to write to you on an extremely important matter, something that will be useful to you all your lives. You would do well to fix it firmly in your memory. Please notice who wrote this. Rav Gaon, the greatest of the Geunim, wrote, wrote it in response to 13. I will copy it out for you word for word. There is a parable about a lion who wanted to eat a fox for his dinner. The fox said to the lion, what good can I be to you? I will show you a very fat human being whom you can kill and you will have plenty to eat. There was a pit covered with branches and grass, and behind it sat a man. When the lion saw the man, he said to the fox, I'm afraid this man may pray and cause me trouble. The fox said, nothing will happen to you or to your son. Maybe your grandson will have to suffer for it. Meanwhile, you can eat and be satisfied until your grandson comes along there is still plenty of time. The lion was persuaded and ran towards the man. He fell into the pit and thus was trapped. The fox came to the edge of the pit and looked down. The lion said, didn't you tell me that the punishment would only come upon my grandson? Your grandfather may have done something wrong and you are suffering for it, replied the fox. Is that fair? asked the lion. The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth ache. So why didn't you think of that before, replied the fox. How much musar is there is in this fable? It seems amazing to us that the great Rav Kai Gaon should have taken the trouble to write out in his response of what seems to be no more than a children's fable. There must be some great message in this which escapes us. 
there is another puzzle in this week's Parsha, Parsha Korach. We know that Korach was a very intelligent man and a great man, one of those chosen to carry the holy ark. With him were 250 heads of the Sanhedrin in the great generation which had received the Torah at Har Sinai. How could they all have made such an obvious mistake? How could they accuse Moshe and Aharon of taking them out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Egypt? Had they enjoyed the milk and honey of Egypt? Had they not seen with their own eyes how Israel was enslaved in Egypt, how they were beaten and persecuted, their children slaughtered or buried alive in the walls of buildings? And all Israel joined in this cry. Not only the mixed multitude of Egyptians and others who accompanied them, after all, in the desert, they had all they needed. How could they present such a foolish argument, implying that they have been better off in Egypt? They presented it with such force as though its truth was obvious to all. This kind of question can be asked in every generation, including our own. When we study the sciences, we see how very intelligent people bring into their studies arguments which contradict the basic tenets of our holy Torah. It is not difficult to see their errors, but they proclaim their arguments with great vigor and obstinacy as though their words were true beyond the shadow of a doubt. We must understand that even the views of the most intelligent people cannot be trusted when their personal desires block the truth. Not only does their intelligence not keep them from erring, but they use their intelligence to mislead others into accepting their foolish conclusions as if they were based on the most rigorous logic. Every sinner wants to lead others to sin. Maybe this is one of the lessons which Rav Kai Gaon wanted to teach us with his parable. The lion, the king of the beasts, fell into the fox's trap simply because he was attracted by the sight of some fat meat. His desire prevented him from seeing what he afterwards realized was the truth. If we take a clear look at our own times, we shall see that those who run blindly after material things lose touch with the truth. Both scholars and scientists can drown in the sea of materialism and use their knowledge and cleverness to draw others after them by mixing anti-Torah ideas with their science. But a critical person can soon distinguish between wisdom and foolishness. In the mind of one who is guided by faith in the Torah, the fear of sin comes before wisdom. If Hashem is near to him in his heart and God's Torah is his delight, he will not easily fall into the traps laid for him by his yetzer. In every generation, those who were seduced by their yetzer wanted everyone else to follow them, even great people like the spies and Korah and the heads hey, of the San Time out. There's just a little bit left. <laughs> that, that statement is like crucial, what you just mentioned about the Yetahara and the, those who follow it and they want people to follow them. Can you repeat that one more time? Because absolutely that. That right there is a highlight. Okay. In every generation, those who were seduced by their yetzer 
Yasser Hurrah, the evil inclination, wanted everyone else to follow them. Even great people like the spies and Korach and the heads of the Sanhedrin. That's powerful, man. Yeah. We have to pray with intensity for Hashem to save us from the Yetzir Hurrah and draw our hearts to him always. If we really want this, then he fulfills the wish of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Hmm. And it's always interesting that we read Korach right at the beginning of Tammuz. Right. The climax going into the, the first fast of the uh, 17th of Tammuz is Parsha Pinchas. So like literally on the day or like right before or right after usually is we're focusing on the zealousness, you know, of Yisrael, like protecting us from plagues and disasters and standing up for truth and things like that. You know how Shavuot says in Romans 11 that through the Gentiles that Israel may be provoked to jealousy? Ooh. I would wow. add to that, how can we provoke them to zeal? Wow. Wow. Because those words, they have a play on each other. And also you know, Isaiah says, you know, Isaiah says all Israel will be righteous. But then Shaul says all Israel will be saved. That's right. So, <laughs> all this is a great pretext for this rumination. <laughs> <laughs> I was just um, looking at the uh, the gematria for materiality, oh, which okay, is Comer. Uh, it's two fifty four. Oh. And which if we rearrange know. those letters, it spells Comer, which is donkey. Yeah. Yep. And what did Yeshua write in on triumphantly? A donkey. The, the Kabbalah of that right there is so deep that it's like he overcomes materialism riding on a donkey. That's right. But Rumination okay. 36. Where did the idea that congregations need, quote unquote, a pastor? Or, quote-unquote, a Messianic rabbi come from? Not the Bible. Right. Yeah, we have Parsha Yitro, and we have Parsha Shoftim, that clearly give us the hierarchy of leaders. And just so everyone knows, Rabbi Trugman Shlita has a beautiful write-up that he did this week about leadership and the structure and what it looks like and you don't just run it with one person at the head so yeah about that Devarim 17 yes Barashar Shofti and you shall do all that they and who's the they 
the judges yeah. that are appointed over you in the gates of your city. You mean it's plural? It's not singular. The like like the like Parashah Shalak Lecha. You see the word men there, but on a sheen, the masculine plural. Right. So the English again is ambiguous in that pursuit in Devarim. It's plural. That's talking about the Sanhedrin. But what Rav Dessler brings regarding the Sanhedrin can be led astray by materialism. What did Yeshua encounter in his day when he confronted the, the Pharisees? And the Zedekim. And by the way, the Zedekim occupied the higher court than the Pharisees did. That's right. And why is that important? Because these people were anti-oral Torah. Exactly. Solar that means that they don't adhere to the traditions handed down from Moshe, handed down from Sinai, handed down from that book right there. <laughs> Why is that important? Because the whole system of how everything flows, that basically means it's off. So here's how you can have court trials at night. Here's how you can be outside of the temple having trials. Here's also how you can have an angry mob mentality that says crucify him, crucify him. And that's totally the way things go. And oh, by the way, let's go talk to the Roman governor <laughs> or the Roman uh, general of whatever sort uh, to figure out what to do with our fellow Jew. Which is crazy because sometimes there's this uh, this accusation of character of the Mashiach, you know, that he couldn't be a kosher Jew or whatever, but uh, that was never brought up, you know. And the sign said, "Inconvenient truth, man. That's one that okay. We'll just you know forget about that for now and just you know." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but Yeshua says, you know, after Peter realized who he was and Yeshua says don't tell anyone yep I think I lost your audio or you're doing a really really good job freezing okay well, I don't know what's going on, so hopefully Shlomo will be reconnecting with us soon. We'll just call this the Mannequin Challenge. This is Korok's face before falling into the, the, the ground. The, oh no, what did I do? So, yeah, Baruch Hashem, may he return back to us and... Uh, yeah. So we'll wait for a moment. Okay. So I'll just talk until he gets back, but um, there he is. Okay. I won't say anything. <laughs> He's back. Connecting audio, though. Microphone check. Check, check, check. Microphone check, one, two.
five by five. Okay. There, there we go. Okay, I don't remember what you were in the middle of saying, but I know we did the inconvenient truth. And um, just a little yeah, machine. I was talking about Matthew uh, 16. Yeshua was talking to his disciples. Whom do you say the Son of Man is? And Peter says, You're the Mashiach, the Son of the Living God, Ben Elohim. And he says, You know, see to it that you don't tell no man, for the Son of Man will be handed over to sinful men. And he's talking about the Romans. Because we know in Christianity, you have a tendency to give Pilate the, the get out of jail free card. Right. And I mean, the one thing we got to face about that one is, is that he was the most vicious governor ever over Judea and Samaria. This guy would not hesitate to crucify anybody, any rebels, any rabble that opposed the might of Rome to make an example of him. It's like you thought Antiochus Epiphanes was bad. Uh, this guy makes him look like a kid, you know? <laughs> makes him look like he, he's buying gumballs and uh, feeding them to children or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's crazy. It's just, it's one of those things, you know, where, you know, being that Christianity comes from Rome, it's like, how do we not self-incriminate ourselves? Because if we blame everything on the Jews and say the Jews are bad, they're the ones who um, who were against the apostles in the book of Acts. I mean, that way you can get away from the whole Roman thing. Because remember, when you study your history, there was no Sanhedrin of actual Jews from like 27 CE and on. Like they left. So the Sanhedrin that was in place was actually a phony Sanhedrin set up by Rome that was full of Sadducees, the Zedukim. So therefore, these people who were opposing the Talmudim of Mashiach, notice what they were opposing them for, don't teach in his name. Not that they were going around saying, oh, Yeshua is the Messiah, convert, get saved, go now. You know, it's like, no, they were teaching Torah in Yeshua's name. Like, hey, this is what the master taught us. Just like you say all the time. Like, it's it's beautiful to hear the way you explain things. You know, this is exactly what the Talmudim were doing. So this is one of the things that there has been a failure of this for 2000 years of improperly representing the Mashiach because he doesn't want us per se to go over the top and just be like, he's the Mashiach. Don't be like, believe in him, you know, don't go away from him and like, you know, submit and all this kind of stuff. He's like, no, teach what I taught you, you know, keep it connected. We quote in the, uh, in the oral Torah all the time, Rabbi so-and-so said in the name of Rabbi so-and-so, I was just about to make that point myself is because Yeshua says it himself. You have heard it said, but see, I say to you, see, come on. See, this is where people go wrong in their interpretation of the gospels, because really the gospels are Talmud as far as I'm concerned. Might as well be. There's a lot of excerpts that you'll find in there. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, just need to like, footnote that thing. <laughs> exactly, highlight it. Get your pen out or bookmark it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I get so excited when I'm like, ah, oh, that's my second. You know, and just that's a voter's era right there. You know. You that's know what? Edge. I've been connecting Shaul's words in this tactic that I've been studying oh. about his era. Oh yeah. Oh. My goodness, nice. man. I mean, it's like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. No wonder Peter says, and they wrestle with it. Those who are unlearned. Yeah. Because a lot of the Agatas in the Talmud are there for a reason. They're like mm-hmm. gate. The words are act like gatekeepers. It prevents those who are unlearned from coming inside and corrupting. Whoa. This is a principle in Kabbalah in Kabbalah as well. The unlearned cannot enter in. <clears throat> you know, you should give us a warning when you're going to say statements like that. <laughs> the words okay. themselves. You've been are... warned. <laughs> like for the whole rest of the podcast. <laughs> okay, so from no. here on out, when I start going to Gothic and Kabbalah, You've been duly warned. <laughs> no, that's you know, the other point about the Zedekin that you were mentioning is yeah. that they, historically speaking, they their theological system descended from the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm. because they held to a hyper-literal interpretation of Torah. Hyper-literal? That is a talking Yehezkel, by the way. Okay. Him. Okay. Saying um, in the name of so and so. Okay. I see you. Yeah. Well, um, I was just going to say, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, the gatekeeper thing. This is why people go, you know, like, I don't want to study this. I don't want to read this. Or who has time for that, you know, or just kind of get discouraged, you know, because I can't, I don't understand, you know, what's going on, things like that. It's that mentality that has to get broken by the way for anybody to study Torah you know like for me I uh, I didn't have that problem and I thank Hashem for it because I was told Hebrew was a hard language Hebrew was a dead language and I was like okay cool I'm gonna go learn it <laughs> you know it is just like and who's gonna teach you I don't know Ruach HaKodesh I don't care I'm I'm in <laughs> You know, so you really do. You have to have the mentality when you come into this because you open up a Talmud, it's it's hefty, you know. And and I mean, even the Torah portions, for that matter, you know, you get into footnotes and commentaries and you're just like, what is going on? <laughs> this is not the Bible, you know. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you're right, because uh, who was that guy? Vulgate. Goodness. Mess some stuff up. <laughs> the latin vulgate yeah so um, anyway yeah that's um yeah and then uh the the Karaites are descendants of theologically speaking and historically speaking of the zedekim because the wow. rambam got into arguments with these guys wow maimonides in the Great. 12th century now, can you guess who holds to the Karite theology? 
today. Rabbi Asher Meza. Hebrew Rooters. What? The Hebrew, the Hebrew Roots Movement. Wow. They hold to a hyper-literal interpretation of Torah. They reject the words of their rabbis. Specifically, this. Interesting. So, this, this talk then about um, Rabbi Meza, not to get off into that tangent, but it says that he borderlines on kind of a Karaite uh, thing because he's super literal. I don't, I wouldn't say he rejects the rabbis, right? I mean, because I don't know much about him, but I do know he's like super like, <laughs> like pretty clear and cut and dry. It's like, we're not going to have to go into all these tangents. I just know from experience because I did attend a, a shul mm -hmm. that was um, a mix. Okay. But little did I know. I mean, I was just getting started in this thing. You know, having my wife and I having come out of the church and now we're looking for a messianic synagogue to go to. And this one looked pretty good. My wife was the one that found it. I said, okay, honey, let's, yeah, let's go check it out. And little did I realize that they are Hebrew roots movement. Uh -huh. That's so crazy how close that they go. And one of the leaders of the congregation whom I know says, oh, Rick, we have to be careful with the rabbis. We can't go by what they say. He literally told me this to my face. Hmm. You know, and I thought to myself, that just does not make any sense at all. Yeah. Because Truth the Jewish people the were given the oracles, plural, of God. They were entrusted with it. The Talmud is part of the hidden Torah revealed. Ooh. The hidden Torah revealed Talmud. That's what the sages are doing. And if you reject the words, you're going to be stuck at the Peshat level. You will not be able to properly search out. See Remez and the Sod. I mean, wow. which is technically Karai MO. Like, we don't want to go past Bashat. Yeah. You know, you know, they're uh, unfortunately, it's unfortunate, you know. And, but see, I don't let that stop me from sharing what I've, what I learned when I studied Talmud. Right. Um, because, you know, how are you going to know how to really keep Shabbat unless you study Halakha, for example? Otherwise, right. you're just going to be making it up as you go along. And this is the problem that we have. This is what this uh, rumination brings out. It brings to the surface those kinds of people who do not want to learn Torah properly. Proper interpretation, in other words, pardes. Fitting that that's parashat Korah. Yeah. And that I love, was really his disposition. Yeah. You know, it's... So we have here, the Protestant Reformation failed in many ways, 
but one particular way it failed may have led to all its other failures. It is this. The Protestant Reformation failed to declare once and for all that the single leader model ultimately negates the leadership of Mashiach. And Shaul says the Mashiach is the head of the body. Right. The one so body. Covering the head. Uh, that passage, uh, Corinthians 11. Yeah. When, it, when it's talking about you shouldn't pray or prophesy with your head covered. So basically what you just talked about, you know, if you take away the rabbis, you know, you're covering up your head kind of thing. It's, 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 it really is like a backwards kind of thing because you would think cover means to put something on, but you also know that you can cover up something by hiding it or pushing it away or concealing it. In other words, like getting rid of it. Yeah, see that what comes up there is a the pastor's understanding or the pastor's theology becomes the congregant's theology. And thus, when you get into discussions with those kinds of people, you run into that theological box that they're stuck in. Because I put the question to this person last night. Where is the word grace first found? <laughs> and he kept going back to the apostolic writings. And I said, no, that's not an answer. Mm. Where in the scriptures? And for his sake, I said Old Testament. So where in the Old Testament, quote unquote, is the word grace first used? And so I sat and I waited for him to give the tempting answer. And he finally said, I don't know. Mm. Which is the first good answer he gave me. And so I got my Tanakh out. I went to Genesis 6, 8, and I read the verse both in English and in Hebrew just to make sure that the point gets across. And he <laughs> said, wow. And I pointed out to him, grace is nothing new. There is no dispensations. Right. There's an unbroken theme or, yeah, in the Tanakh of redemption. And it all starts in the garden. What do you think about the question, where do the apostolic writings come from? See, that's the thing is the... The Talmudim that wrote the letters, and this includes Shaul, they draw their a lot of their understanding from the rabbis. Shaul is a prime example of this. Who taught him? Gamliel. He is probably mentioned in the Talmud. I don't know if the same Gamliel of yeah, the Talmudic there was, period. Yeah, because there's a couple. And we yeah. were in the I think there's during at least the, three. Yeah, because during the account of Acts, we were still in the Tanaic period. Yeah. The codification was still gathering and things like that from the commentaries on the original teachings. So, yeah, I know the first Gamaliel was early first century. So, 
you know, could be Gamaliel too. Yeah. But this is who Shaul learned from. Yeah. Shaul was very zealous for their interpretation of Torah. That is, until Acts 9, when he encounters the master, and says, why are you persecuting me? Yeah. And then he asks, who are you, Lord? <laughs> That's when he does Teshuvah. That's when he comes back to Torah. Teshuvah la Torah. Right. That's really important. And I'm quoting Natalia Heskel again because he has he had a really good teaching on this. Because historically speaking, the master observed Torah Judaism or what, what some people would call normative Judaism. I know Richard Spurlock over at Brian's Online refers to him in that manner. And I do agree with that. It's, you know, from a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so this is what Shaul did. And this is what the apostles who went out throughout all Asia Minor did. To get people to do you know, Shuvah, to return to the Torah, to the way of Hashem. Nobody else's way but Hashem's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and this is where Acts 15 comes in. Yeah. Because that letter that was written there, that was to help with that mission that they were doing, where they were all going out. It's like, take this letter with you as you're going into all these places, because you got to have a starting point. You know, once you start keeping the Shabbat and you start getting a, a level head on the parasha and the different uh, appointed times, you'll, you'll, you'll start to open up and your household will be, you know, made savvy to certain things and, you know, you'll slowly progress. So you just need somewhere to start from. So that's really neat, just thinking organically how everything worked. And, you know, with the stoning of Stephen, that started the diaspora, you know, because everybody was like, it's time to go, which I can't help but think about the the scattering process, just like in Parsha Korach, where everyone just took off running. Like the earth opened up and swallowed all these people and everybody's like, we are out, <laughs> You know, like you thought we ran away from Mount Sinai when Hashem was speaking the Torah. Oh, you ain't seen nothing. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, like <laughs> the ground is opening. We don't know how and where and when. Oh, I'm weird. Anything's not solid. We're, we're off. <laughs> you know what? That's uh, a Gezerah Shabbat because in the Midrash, we have that the earth bears witness to the creation of Adam. Mm. That it gives up a part of itself, the Edomah. Ooh. And what swallowed them up? The earth. the earth. The earth bears witness to the sin of Korach and the 250 men. Wow. This is why uh, this is why in the Torah wellsprings I, I see why he brings up Cain and Hevel. Because the gematria for Korok's name is 308, 
and the gematria for Hevel's name is 37. You put those two together, you have Moshe. Mm. <clears throat> and the Arizal says that Hevel was not entirely good. He had 308 um, evil, or I have to read it again. I can bring it up. But there were 308 evil sparks. And there were 37 good sparks that were in Hevel. And Cain had the 308. And Cain, uh, Korach, is a Gilgal for Cain. And 37, the 37 sparks, and we know that Moshe is the Gilgal for Hevel. Mm -hmm. Because when he was born, Yochebed said, and he looked good, Tov. Thus, he rectifies all the sparks in Hevel because mm -hmm. he was in, Moshe was entirely good. This is what the Arizal says concerning Moshe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a gematria too, uh, the word Gadol, which is great. Gimel Dalit Lamet, it's 37. And that was also the difference between Moshe and Korak. So Moshe has a gematria of 37 more than Korak. Yep. So, and uh, this was cool because this is my wife's store portion. So shouts out to Mazo Basera. Um, uh, she, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She was bringing this down in her bat mitzvah that uh, Moshe was Gadol um, Korak. And Korak was basically trying to say, no, Moshe, you weren't, you aren't, you know. So in other words, he was competing against someone of not necessarily a higher stature or status, but even though that's true, um, just someone who was, I mean, even the names you know, there's a, a, a very big difference there. And he was really just not content with his lot, basically, is what ended up happening. So, you know, tr trying to take the gadol down, in other words, remove that, remove, remove distinction, take away barriers. So. Yeah, we have to remember, you know, Hashem puts you where you are for a reason. Yeah. And you need to be content because he's giving you your mission and you need to do it. And stop comparing yourself to someone else. Man, true. So true. Because that's a dangerous thing to do. Then you won't be content. You'll start complaining, kvetching. And, just, and kvetching always leads to Mashan Hara, which happened with the spies. This is why I always keep these two parsha connected really close because they are. That's good. Because Korak, like Korak <laughs> seized on the spy's bad report. Mm -hmm. But Rashi says the spies did not learn from the incident with Miriam. Oh, we got a trilogy going. So. Korak didn't learn either. I want to be the Kohen Gadol. 
but you had the singular distinction of carrying the Brit Aron, the holiest object in the Mishkan. How could you possibly complain about that? Hashem has entrusted you with the most holy object in the entire Mishkan. Yeah, they made movies about it. <laughs> like, oh, let's yeah. go get the Ark, you know. Raiders and, of the Lost Ark. Oh, my God. Yeah. And people died from looking at it. But he was like, no. Oh, don't make me quote First Samuel chapter 6 because I know that one so well. <laughs> go when ahead. The Philistines captured, when the Philistines captured the Ark and they put it next to the god Dagon. And Dagon yeah. kept falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> And this went yep. on for what? Get this, three days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the third day, they finally get it, get it. So what did they do? They put the ark on a cart with an oxen, and we know that the ox is a sin offering, right? Ooh. So they send the ark on the cart with the ox on its way, and it finds its way into the village or town. Of the Beth Shemites. And one man encounters the ark. And what does he do? He looks inside. He pulls the cover off. As if you're trying to see the form of Hashem. And bam, he was struck dead. And 50,000 Beth Shemites died that day. That is serious. I mean, that. I and, think then when, of, and then when David was bringing the ark into Jerusalem, you remember what happened then? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when he All didn't he did was put his hand on the cart. That was enough. Yeah. <laughs> we just got knocked off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because the Shem said, don't touch the mountain, you know. Exactly, Gerasava, right there. Well, here's another one. So, in Judaism, you do not open the coffin at the funeral at the Leviya, right? Oh my goodness! And what does Christianity do? Yep, they leave the thing open, and what happens? You okay? You just Mm -hmm, come in contact mm -hmm. with a dead body. And what did you say about the guy peeking into the ark? Like looking in there, not that Shem's a dead body or anything, but just saying, we 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 had this discussion before about the broken tablets and the complete tablets being all in there together to have the complete testimony, and that the Ark of Yosef, or the coffin of Yosef, which is also called Ark, uh, was traveling next to the Ark of the Covenant because that one, which is in this one, fulfilled that which is in this. You know, and so it was just kind of like, is Yosef dead or is he not? You know, because he's traveling next to the ark and you shouldn't have a dead body in a in a place like that. So, uh, no. <laughs> and, the other thing about, and the other thing about Joseph's coffin, the cover, the, the keparet, the Aris all says that they used that as the platform to put the golden calf on. That is insane. Why would why are you doing that? <laughs> and Hashem's you know looking down and like, okay. 
You know what you just said, right? Yeah. Because that's totally why the cross has become a golden cap. The foundation for the cross is the Messiah Minyos. We know this. You can argue it if you want, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we don't really have time for that and we're not going to go into that. But I'm just saying, you want to put the golden calf on the platform of the bones of Yosef. Seriously? I know that that is just absolutely insane that they did that. But that's the era of Rob. Man. Oh my goodness. Rabbi Trugman Shlita okay. brought this up. <laughs> he said the the word for imagination in Hebrew. Oh my goodness. How come I can't remember it? Koak medame. And basically, the golden calf and the word koak medame have the same gematria. So, basically, in other words, imagination and golden calf have the same gematria. Just like Erev Rav. He dudes and he dot have a good mind of 474. Right. Yeah, because you, you think about the, uh, let's just call it what it is, the heinousness that is existing because of that, because of what's been done with the cross and what's been done with the era of Rav, all of the disconnections, all of the separation, all of the confusion that exists in the world. That's it's pretty horrible. I mean, you're pulling a high G burn and you just had a stroke, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, man. <laughs> you got right, too it. much, man. Yeah. <laughs> ruminate, I, know, ruminate. I, I love I just real quick. I just love the expanse. It's just such a good show. Yeah. The expanse. Love it. But just as Korok's rebellion was to replace Moshe, so too the one-man show in pulpits and bimans ships the very leadership of Mashiach. There is one head of the congregation of Hashem and it's Yeshua alone. And yet these men denigrate Moshe and yet they take his place all in the same breath. I can just say from personal experience that when I was sitting in church in an actual pew with cushions, with the fan and everything, Moshe was never the centralized focal point of the teaching. You know, and when you follow that out to its logical conclusion, because Mashiach Yeshua is the centralized piece of the teaching. But what did we just say about the platform of the golden calf? It was on Yosef. It was never on the ark. So that's, that's a plus. However, 
<laughs> because you're so fixated on Joseph, you're forgetting about the other thing over here, the the Ark of the Covenant, namely. And Yeshua himself brings this all together when he says, if you don't believe in Moshe, how can you believe in me? Like, you're going to fix your teachings on me, but disconnect me from Moshe? Like, you don't have anything if you do that. That's what I told this. this a, uh, uh, I'm sorry. But that's what I told this person whom I was discussing with yesterday. You need to read. Um, actually, it's in the group, actually. Because I was okay. pointing out John 5, 545 through 47. Connect that with Numbers 12. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, this is why Yeshua was saying, you know, don't focus on telling people on the Mashiach. You know, focus on the things that I taught you. Yeah. Like, when you, okay, because I used to do Mashiach Mondays, you know, and there's a there was a lot that we got to cover in the short amount of time that we did. But as you can see, there's so many sources on the Mashiach. You know, like, who is he? How is he? Where is he? Like, what is he? You know, the soul of Mashiach existed before creation. And yet, in and throughout the timeline of creation so far, he appears and disappears. And it's just like, wait, what? You know, and all of the different uh, narratives that are out there about different Mashiachs, you know, and things like that. Valid and not valid, by the way. And it's just like Yeshua was like, listen, <laughs> what, what does the Torah say? Because because we if we're if people aren't getting there, they're not going to get any of this other stuff. You know, like, what does it mean that the soul of the Mashiach, which is likened to the throne of glory, which is the spirit of Hashem hovering over the depths? Before there was light, by the way. Like, what does that, like, if you try to break that down, what does that even mean? So anyway, just to the point here, of what we're talking about, like, we have to be fixated on the Torah. Like, that is the foundation. Got to have the foundation. And notice the Ark and Yosef are side by side. That's a picture of Torah and Mashiach. They're side by side. They're inseparable. And I always say this, that the Torah is the revelation of Hashem, its righteousness and holiness. There is nothing that supersedes it or replaces it. Nothing. I was trying to explain this to my friend yesterday, and he just wasn't getting it. He kept saying, oh, Jesus' death and resurrection changed everything. And I had to say, that contradicts the Torah. Yeah. Yeah, sure does. Resurrection is nothing new. As great an event as that is for our Emunah, that's just the first fruits of them that slept. And I'm quoting Shaul. Mm -hmm. Why does he say it like that? Why does he phrase it like that? Just like why, why does the Torah say that Vayikach uh, Korach? And Korach took. 
because I can get into the Ari on that one. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, but let's just let's just touch on this point real quick about his death changing everything. You know, because, it's yeah. Go ahead. You got some? I think about um, was it? Uh, I try to remember who was taken out. Who didn't taste death? The first person who did not taste death uh, in Genesis. Um, oh, Seth. What? Was it Seth? Oh, Enoch. Enoch. Yes. Yeah, because Hashem took him. And some, like I think the King James says, for he was not, for God took him. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm thinking Kabbalah is. His self-nullification was to the point where he just totally wasn't aware of his own own uh, egoism, his own existence. He merged himself in the totality of Hashem and bam, he just got taken up. Yeah. So, and then we have Eliyahu. Mm-hmm. So, this is why Shaul says what he says that he is the first fruits of them that slept. That is, he died a man's yeah. death. Yep. And Dan was taken up. Yes. <laughs> Everybody because what does he tell Mary? After he walks out of the tomb, what does he tell Martha and Mary not to do? Don't touch him. Yeah. They're to me, he's to whore. Like the ark. Don't touch the ark. Cannot Don't the go there. And what is and what did so many Christians misinterpret Hebrews when it says we can go boldly before the throne of grace? That yeah. that's Kabbalah. That's talking about the world of uh, absolute. What yeah. if, where the um, yeah, the Orain Sof. Just above that world is the Orain Sof, the divine light that maintains all of creation. Wow. So Yeshua says, hey, you know, don't touch the merchandise unless you want to buy it. <laughs> so I haven't ascended yet. Oh, yeah. that is so huge. Yeah. And what were we reading in last week's Parsha, Beha Alotka, when you mm-hmm. said to light the lamp of the menorah? Yeah. So now he goes to ascend to the heavenly Mishkan and does the work that the writer of Hebrews describes, mm-hmm. which uh, the place that's made without hands, the pattern that was shown to Moshe on Mount Sinai. How can we as physical beings who occupy the physical space of creation ascend to something that is outside the physical space of creation? You have got to teleport. Transfiguration was just the beginning on that one. Yeah. But There's... we also have to remember the Orkaim statement regarding Parashat Bamidbar where he says, and this is the place that is with Hashem. Mm. The whole universe is the place that is with him. 
So tell, explain to me how you are going to ascend to the throne that does not exist within the physical space, the physical universe that you and I occupy right now. Well, I do have a tag on that uh, from Jewish mystical. Oh, what is this word? Encyclopedia of Jewish myth, magic, and mysticism. So it's it, it literally footnotes everything. So to get to that tabernacle, you go through a portal, which, by the way, is the word Sha'ar in Hebrew, which is the word for gate. So Sha'ar can translate as portal. So this is talking about Memtet, of course. It says Memtet has a very prominent role in Hekelot literature. And then this section here about the Mishkan. Here it is. When the Holy One blessed this he, told Yisrael to set up the Mishkan, which is called the Portal Sanctuary, he indicated to the ministering angels that they should also make a Mishkan. And when the one below was erected, the other was erected on high. Okay, so here's your tabernacle that's made without human hands. Then it says the latter, this tabernacle on high, is the tabernacle of the Na'ar, the youth, whose name is Memtet. And there he also offers up the souls of the righteous to atone for Israel in the days of their exile. Remember, he's offering up his soul. Yeah. <laughs> And we're getting ready to go into exile. The nefesh of Mashiach. Yep. So when he's offering himself up, his blood on the mercy seat, you know, all of that, literally, that's that's what Adam was doing, by the way, in the garden. So we learned that before. But it says he offers up the souls of the righteous. It says the reason then why it is written at Hamishkan which means the direct object marker Aleph Tav is read as with, implying that there is something else unstated that was built with the desert Mishkan. And it is because another Mishkan was erected simultaneously with it in the same way it says the place Adonai, which you have made for you to dwell in the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hand have established the parallelism of place and sanctuary is interpreted to mean two sanctuaries. See Exodus 25, 17 and Numbers Rabbah 12, 12. See, all that points to Melchizedek because Yeshua's priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek's priesthood is, has completely different requirements. This is what the writer of Hebrews talks about. Right, because you got to be a king but as well. You still need the earthly priesthood. Why? Because it is a shadow pointing to the heavenly Mishkan. And Aaron's priesthood is Ukat Olam by eternal decree. 
Are you trying to say you can't have the lower without the upper or the upper without the lower? You have the lower and the upper worlds. You have the lower waters and the upper waters. Mm-hmm. In Kabbalah. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. Get you some. And people you may say today we don't have I, potential. I just thought of this. I was watching a movie today called Interstellar. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen it or not with Matthew McConaughey. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the title. So I know you're yeah. trying to the space uh, movie. Well, I'm going to give a little spoiler because it happens like towards the end where um, he falls into this black hole, Gargantua. Right? But at the center of this black hole is a tesseract, a hypercube. Four. And the first thing I thought of was the four worlds of Kabbalah. Wow. Atsi, Lu, Berea, Yetzi, Ra, Asira. I'm nice. Like, oh. <laughs> and in this tesseract, he sees fragments of time. Because mm-hmm. time and space are interconnected they're intertwined this see this really tells us why shabbat is so important because it is the intersection of eternity and time man you said shabbat is to time as israel is to space as mashiach is to the soul yes i wanted to just jump through the screen and just karate chop all your stuff over there (laughs) you're like what did you just say? Like, why? Uh, anyway, Mashiach's death, though, because there was at least a three-day period. There was nothing different. There was actually a, a dropout, if you will, because people were just kind of like, wait, what just happened? You know? And when he returned, you know, everybody was freaking out because it's like, are you a ghost? Like, what's happening? And it's just like, no, it's me. Shalom Aleichem, you know? It's still Pesach. Let's have some matzah, you know. And for 40 days, he's going around teaching. But what did he teach? He didn't teach anything new. He kept teaching the Torah. And matter of fact, he said, Shabbat's coming up in a little bit. So why don't y'all just go stay in the upper room that's above the tomb of David, you know, because his guard site is Shabbat. So why don't we just have a big throwdown, you know, and what does Kepha right out the gate start teaching? Torah. <laughs> so when people talk about Mashiach's death changed everything, it's like, no, it did not. Like literally, if you read, it it didn't. Oh boy, I just said uh, Luke twenty four forty four. Yeshua said to them, "This is what I meant when I was still with you." And told you that everything written about me in the Torah of Moshe, I mm. like how David puts that in the CJB. Yeah. This is why I like the CJB. <laughs> the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. And again, stressing the way the word fulfilled is used in obedience to what is written in the Torah. The, the, I'll just say Tanakh. Right. Then he did what? Verse 45. He opened their minds. 
so that they could understand the Tanakh. Telling them, here's what it says. The Mashiach is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. That's the Shem descending on Harsinai to give the Torah. Which is when we were at a place of revelation. So here's that. That's what really Mashiach's death is all about. Because it doesn't end there. It ends with the resurrection and with the fact of him opening our minds, giving us a greater understanding, this expanse, if you will. So, yeah, if you want to talk about it, change something. Well, first, you got to get to the resurrection and then you got to get to the encounter with his Talmudine. You know, right? And, and, and the Torah, uh, see, now I'm connecting this with another one of his parables where he talks about a seed that is alone, doesn't sprout, but the seed that dies is planted in the ground. It dies, but yet it grows. Mm-hmm. And what does Yochanan say about this in his first letter regarding the seed of Hashem that is in us? Ooh, never thought about this one. Okay. And in his name, repentance leading to forgiveness of sin should be is to is to be proclaimed to the people from all nations, starting with Yerushalayim. You are witnesses of these things. And I keep now I think of the Hebrew word aid. Yeah. We're the, the counterbalance and the Dalet made large on the Shema. Yeah. I was gonna say we we're to be the counterbalance to the air of Rob. Yeah, because if we don't do our part, the Arab Rob will certainly do their part. Yep, and they are right now. <laughs> yep, the craziness in Israel right now. I cannot believe three parties in control. Oh boy! Just so you know, I always had this thing I used to mention uh, at my former synagogue that when you see the enemy's tactics. He's revealing to you things that we have on an exponential level on the side of Kedusha. So if there's that much unity on the side of the Citra Akra, that's telling us how much actual unity we have. And I'm talking Haredi. I'm talking Neo-Orthodox. I'm talking conservative. And dare I say, reform. <laughs> there literally is the potential for that expanse of people and even Zionists for that matter to unify. Like just because we see those three parties right now over in Israel, like you mentioned, just, just from that, think about that. So use your imagination on the side of Kedusha and exponential. I'm glad you said Kedusha. I'm like, yo. <laughs> yeah. Kedusha. <laughs> because you can just concoct all kinds of things. I mean, the big thing about it is uh, Lashon Hara. They're always speaking bad about one another. Mm-hmm. And now you have this era of Rav of three different parties in control of the Knesset in Israel how 
is Kedusha going to come down? Yeah, we're going to have to do some things different. That's for sure. This is why I say earlier, we need to provoke them to zeal, not just jealousy. To, to yeah. zeal so that they see our zealousness for Torah with our passions governed. Because there is nothing worse than someone whose passions are not governed and they just run like a steamroller over everybody. Mm-hmm. Because you're not an effective witness in that case. You're not representing Mashiach as you should. Um, I mean, might as well break out the sledgehammer and... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kaput, you know? Um, That's amazing, though, bro, just thinking about that, because we're going towards the three weeks, and we're in Tammuz now. Like, the the potential of what we have in this month like we can be ahead of the three weeks you know yeah i pray that we are anyway you're for me this i've always given this time special attention because of the parshas that we're in right now because it's that grievous and also what's almost as grievous as the sin of the golden calf is the 18 measures passed by Beit Shemayi. I remember that. The sages say that too. Right. That's what I got to start doing. I got to start bringing a drink in my booth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm up in here. Uh, It'd be Gatorade, (laughs) but I mean, you know. Oh, uh, no, it's nice that you brought that up because it leads right into the next paragraph of the rumination. Mm-hmm. It's quite ironic that many self appointed pastors and messianic rabbis, quote unquote, lead the congregation away from the Torah of Moshe. After all, they think of themselves as a kind of Moshe, but there's only one Moshe. By speaking against the law of Moses, quote-unquote, they show their personal rebellion against the Almighty. That is serious. And, wow. don't even, and, and the joke is, they don't even know it. Hmm. But see, it's up to you and I who know this, who are been made aware of it by Hashem's grace, and mercy to teach. Yeah. Because he is raising up a remnant as we speak. And you and I are a part of that remnant. Along with so many others. Yeah. Got to keep connecting. You know, I mean, so long as we keep our passions governed and our zeal and keep a level head. Mm-hmm. There's another lesson we can draw from Korah. He didn't come at this thing with a level head. He just, right. his, his makloket, and this is Torah Wellsprings again, and it's really good, you know, that we have to be careful that our makloket is not, we may think it's for the sake of heaven, but that's the Yetzirah coming along and telling you that. 
very, very deceptive. Yeah. You know, when you're trying to talk to her with a friend, like say someone at work or someone I encounter, like this person yesterday whom I was sharing with, you know, ultimately it reaches a point where it's like a blockade and you have to stop. I know I have to stop when my wife tells me, okay, honey, <laughs> you're not getting anywhere, so you need to Result stop. It's not, it's not for the sake of heaven, you know, at that point. You need to recognize mm -hmm. when the Yetzirah is really being deceptive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, Yaakov when he wrestled with it at Peniel, and he asked him his name. Yeah. The Yetzirah always comes with a different name. And that's in the Midrash. <laughs> Tractate Sukkah 52 as well. Ah, there we go. Yes. Got seven oh, names that correspond to the seven days of the week. Yeah. Men that seize the role are just like Korah. They are not leading people to God by leading them away from Moshe. I actually had a pastor that told me this, Rick, you don't submit. Hmm. And I was thinking to myself, what, to you? I'm only doing what you're teaching me, man. <laughs> yeah, because in parenting, they say your child learns not what you say, but what you do. Dude, because there was a, watching what you do. <laughs> it was it was Torah Wellsprings last week, actually, that was talking about this this yeshiva student, young child, brilliant Torah scholar, amazing prodigy, stealing. And the Rosh she was like, "What in the world? Like, come on, top ten, right?" But <laughs> you know, and it's just like they went and did a uh, some digging and investigation of what's going on in the house child was like well i see grandmother stealing you know without telling anybody and moving stuff around now i see ema stealing and moving stuff around without anybody knowing so i was just like yeah obviously this is the way we're supposed to roll so that's what i do i do only what i see and i was just like good night but you think even in just the example you just shared, it's just like you're getting told you don't submit by a person who knows that they don't submit themselves. You know, think about the people who teach and are submitted to the law of Moshe. Like they don't ever have to go around and threaten people. Hey, you listen to me. I, I've to this day, I have not heard that, you know, like. <laughs> It's just kind of like, so if you're modeling submission and level-headedness, obviously you're not going to have to tell anybody, hey, submit to me, be level-headed. <laughs> you know, it's just like see, people are literally... You know, that ultimately, that negates the leadership of Mashiach. Yeah. That's what they're I like doing. that that's in the rumination, too. You know, that's really an important principle of Torah. Yeah, because sometimes well, you can forget that Mashiach is your rabbi, you know? Yeah, he's our rabbi. He's the one we attach ourselves to. He's the one that we obey. And if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. 
and we know that Hashem's instructions are loving. That's right. It's incredible. You know, what does that mean when you say Mashiach is your rabbi? You know? Because we, we get so caught up in the formality of having a human face all the time. Because even though we had Moshe, who were we ultimately submitted to? The importance of who Korach was actually fighting against. He, his beef was not with his cousin. He was not like, cousin Momo, you got to go-go. Like, he wasn't, he wasn't doing that. He was saying, Hashem, you're out. I'm in. You got to go hang 10, man. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, That's by crazy. rebelling against uh, Moshe, they're rebelling against Mashiach. See, None of these people make that connection. They don't. Dude, that's heavy, man. Wow. That is serious. That's also a form of Lashon Hara as well. You know, what that just sounds like to me is you clearly don't know the Mashiach that you follow. Because if you don't get his identity down, how can you get his teachings down? Or how can you be identified with the Rebbe? Right. So with that being the case, if you want to call him Christ, which a lot of people do, um, in order for you to, to really be identified with him, that would insinuate that you would keep the Shabbat, that you would eat kosher, that you would daven uh, from a siddur and the Seder that we were given from the sages, you know, like the Shimoni Esrei, because that, that literally is the prayer, you know? So you would dress as a newt, you know, practice Shomer Nagia. You know, you would know what these terminologies are because, I mean, this is the Mashiach. This is how he identifies. So it's crazy, right? Because if you're Christian, you, you don't keep Shabbat. You know, you don't go to synagogue. And you don't know that the Bible is actually the Tanakh. Neither are you taught, which should be even more alarming. I mean, but, true discipleship because yeah. unfortunately it's a business they're out to fill the pews what do most pastors do when and this has happened to me so rick you're not tithing you're, you're i'm looking at the records here and you're just like super minimalist here you know you just barely give and i'm like where does he get the chutzpah to say that to me. Mm. Mm. And yet you dare quote a Torah commandment. And yet you say, oh, it's the law of Christ. You know, that right there, why should I submit to you? Why? 
I'm attaching myself to the Zadik, Yeshua, the righteous. Yeah. You know, I mean, this next sentence too, I mean, by annulling or diminishing the Torah, they make for themselves a new law, and it is not God's law, no matter what they say. And I was just, I just said it too, the law of Christ. Yeah, yeah, a new law. Which, if you go to the Messiah text, there's a whole chapter on the new law, the law of the Messiah. There, the chapter is called New Torah. And you know what new Torah means? The insights that we're going to be taught of the Torah of Moshe by the Mashiach. Yeah. So when we say the law of Christ, we're actually talking about the Torah that the Mashiach is going to teach us, which is like the, the deeper meanings, the insights, like how murder is actually hatred of your brother back to Cain and Hevel again uh, you know like you read in the Peshat don't murder anybody but I tell you don't hate your brother in your heart which isn't that interesting that that is connected to the second commandment of uh, love your neighbors you love yourself it says you shouldn't go around with hatred in your heart for your brother. Yeah, Vaikra 19, you should not hold a grudge. Yeah. Which so, I mean it's just interesting, the the law of Christ. Like if you really want to get down into the nitty-gritty of that, that's the new Torah. Mm -hmm. Which means things that you would read from Arizal. Things that you read from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Those are actually law of Messiah drops. There's a reason why the 1500s was when all of this came out. The Hasidut, um, Baal Shem Tov, Alter Rebbe, you know, not that they came out in 1500, but like from that time forward, like it got super mystical. And think about that when Mashiach Yeshua came. That's like, what, 1,400 years gap? You know, like that's how, how much he was ahead of the whole time of the public revelation. Well, supposedly you have the text of the Bahir, which was written about that time. One of the earliest Kabbalistic texts ever written, I believe. Wow. So Tanakuma was shortly after. <laughs> Goodness. And then okay. what do we have? And correct. Second century, uh, Shimon Bar Yokai. Yeah. He goes into a cave for 12 years with his son. And what does he come out with? The Zohar. That story's in the Sabbath by Avraham Yosef Heschel. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. And you know, this goes in line with those epochs of time for the 2,000 years of desolation, 2,000 years of Torah, 2,000 years of Mashiach, you know, right before the end of the 6,000 year period. So we are definitely in that that window and it, it's, it's played out already, you know, as far as the public revelation, what people have access to. Oh, but yeah, yeah this Daniel 
and they shall go to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That's yeah. talking about Torah. Yeah. Yep. And I was just going to say know, this, um, this one man person that you're talking about here in the rumination, he stands in the way of that. He, he, he limits it. Yeah, it's the dichotomy. Um, it's, I'm frankly amazed. I mean, it's how, but then again, Shaul says in Thessalonians, you know, that they all, that um, all may be damned who don't believe the truth. That is the Torah. For God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And he's quoting Yehezkel. Yeah. Where Hashem says, and I will choose their delusions. And if Hashem does that, what recourse do you have? Except possibly Teshuvah. <laughs> yeah, right. If Hashem is going to delude you, I mean, that's... That's a decree from the heavenly court, man, and that can't be overturned. Yeah, because that's on the level of Pharaoh having his heart hardened. Yeah. And we know the only reason Pharaoh's heart was hardened is because he wanted it to be. Or actually, he says, who is Adonai that I shall obey him? Right. So think about that with the delusions, like you have got to want to be deluded. And that's not active. Delusion is passive, actually. Yeah. It, it's external to you. It usually comes from an external source. Yeah. Uh, the whole but talking see, to and, the, and, and see, this is why psychologists say a self-reinforcing delusion. Because you adopt it as your own, and it thus becomes your own personal belief system. Anyone who challenges this personal belief of yours is not welcome. They, do, they, they expend a great amount of energy refuting your argument. Throwing up a stumbling block, a blockade, whatever that they do psychologically, because they have been blinded. This is the Don't problem with a blind person. Yeah, this is the problem with the theological systems of any religion apart from the Torah. This is why I, I always stress it. Nothing replaces or supersedes the revelation from Sinai. Nothing. Right. The moment so you, you stray from this, you are open to deception. And this is, and this is something else that Spurlock says. In, in his in his commentary is that and as a matter of fact is in the past rumination those who make the Torah of Hashem a mark of their discipleship to the master are in a far safer place than most believers mm. because deception is always lying in the shadows waiting especially those who do not say yes to Hashem Spies said this last week. This was in Torah Well Springs. They say Amalek dwells in the south, which is where you actually pray towards if you want wisdom. 
So Amalek is always dwelling in the place of where wisdom is. And so he's just looking for the gap. Like, are you, do you really want wisdom or are you just going to turn your nose up at it? Because if you're going to turn your nose up at it, then that's my entry point. <laughs> Which is brought into play this week by Rabbi Shbile Pincus Shlita, who says that Korak and his people used what's called la leznut, le, le which is mockery, which is the 50th level of impurity, which is what Amalek used to attack Israel right after the splitting of the sea. So in other words, Amalek, was so potentially a threat that they could have stopped us from receiving the Torah. On the other side of receiving the Torah and going into the promised land was Korak. He could have stopped us from doing that, which he kind of did, but not really. However, the point being that he used this mockery to, um, to basically do what Amalek does to come in and bring in all the doubts and uh, distort wisdom and things like that. So it's a, it's a really, really crazy thing that you have the, the revelation at Sinai here in the middle, you have a Malik on one side and Korak on the other. <laughs> and so. <laughs> and Amalek and Sephak have a gematria of 240. Yeah. Doubt. And what did Israel do after uh, they realized their error with the spies? Oh, yeah. They were like, all right, let's go. We got this. And they went to the south, and Amalek was sitting there waiting <laughs> and slaughtered them. Oh, you're going to come my way, huh? You just got owned. <laughs> yep. That is just crazy. And you, if, oh, see, this is the problem. Sin becomes an entanglement. Yes. And you got entangled in the net of Amalek. Ooh. That's the opposite of the crown of thorns. Yeah. And Adam was created outside the garden where the thorns were as a reminder mm -hmm. of the consequence of disobedience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, yeah, that's just reading from Shlakotis. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. What now. you got? Let's see. Get to the commandment first. But what I'll do is um, draw Torah. Or the Torah is called light because it enlightens. It is also called ash, fire, just as one benefits from its warmth when it's keeping a certain distance from it. But becomes burned when approaching too closely. So it is with the secrets of the Torah. Korah got too close. Yeah. In the state of rebellion. Which, because guess him, who which ultimately renders him to May. Right. And, and we got the Mishkan the erected. He was using it's been the, dedicated. Level. the offerings are in progress or in the process of being offered. Yeah. He was using the 50th level of impurity 
So think about this. Who else got too close but did not get burned? Avraham, when he was thrown in the furnace. That's right, yeah. Nimrod. And tossed him in there. Azariah. I'd I'd rather go in there than obey you. Right. Think about that. Because that's the opposite of Korah. Throw that one at a pastor when he says you're not submitting. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. Oh, when that's Neb- right. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. who was yeah. like, you guys need to bow. And they're like, nah, it's okay. We'll have a party but, in the furnace, man. It'll be a real hot party, too. <laughs> yeah. Because it was like this furnace was like so hot, but it's just like based off of what you just read from the Shayla, you know, it's just like the Torah is like, that's not a fire. That's hot. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's just like getting so close to the Torah. It's like there's the divine light, man. (laughs) Man. So, I mean, it just completely makes sense why the righteous don't get scorched in the fire because Kedushat Levi tells us that when the third temple is rebuilt, there's going to be walls of fire that surround the new Jerusalem. And in order for us to get to the third temple, we're going to have to walk through those walls of fire because Hashem destroyed the temple in fire. He's going to rebuild it in fire. So how close to the Torah are we getting? How much mockery have we let go of? You know, how much of this man-made system of having a pastor, of having a a rabbi who leads us away from Torah, you know, all these kinds of things. That's a heavy statement, I realize, but I mean, we got to be honest here. It's accurate. You know, we we got fire coming. So who? Yeah, like, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm trying to get in. <laughs> that, that's, in to get... that's in this documentary I have, uh, the Foundation Stone. Evan Shetiyah. Fire is judgment. Yeah. It's chaos. Yeah. But Vohu is desolation, which is shalom. But, I mean, we're just beginning, I think, from what I'm seeing happening in the world, mm-hmm. that this reality is already being reorganized. I agree with that. Back it's crazy to, to see. Uh, so now I'm thinking molecule and it expands because that is just crazy. Yeah, please do because I actually got to look more into that. Um, let me, <laughs> I, I want to share this with you. This, okay. Because I read this and I uh, I thought, it was a don't, don't get crazy with me right now. Okay, hang on. Right here. So I'm like super excited. This definition of protomolecule, I was just like, what amazingness. Uh, three, two, where is it? No, it's right here. Sorry, bro. Okay, here it is. This says a collection of unstably bound atoms that has the potential to form a molecule if the structure can shed sufficient energy 
Yeah. That. Because the Torah is the 613 letters in disarray. Unstable. Bond of molecules that has the potential to form a structure if it can shed sufficient energy. And yet it reorganizes matter at the subatomic level. Yeah. But you know, it see we we're zeroing in our focus to that, but bring it out further into the physical space of creation where it's perceptible to us on the physical plane. Right. The world of Asira, the world of action. Mm-hmm. So what I read from Shlakodesh here about the fire of the Torah, Tohu, that is what's coming. The complete reorganization or repurposing or the returning of this reality back to the one that existed in that very first verse of the Torah. Because that, see this, on the mystical level, this is why the Torah does not need to use the phrase Olam Haba, because it is a description of Olam Haba. That was a ninja sentence. (laughs) The Torah doesn't have to use the term Olam Haba, because it is. I was reading in the handbook of Jewish thought and I'm so upset that I did not take a picture or bring it in here with me, but it was talking about the whole Zim Zoom with Hashem contracting and making a space for creation. But yet when he makes the Zim Zoom, that empty space that was devoid of Hashem couldn't be devoid of Hashem, but it also couldn't be totally consumed with Hashem. So it says he contracted and allowed his essence to permeate that empty space. The essence of Hashem is the highest manifestation of Hashem within creation that also has past, present, and future within it at the same time. So therefore, the essence of Hashem is the future. That we, that we can perceive because right. we're, we're in linear time. What, because mm-hmm. he exists outside of linear time that he created. Right. And so it was <laughs> get, just this get really your head neat, around that one, man. <laughs> yeah. Just this really neat thing about like, you know, for us, we have to predict the future, you know, or try to think about, okay, what are we going to do then? Or what's coming up? You know, Hashem's like, that's the essence of who he is which just really points to why Yeshua was never in a rush to get anywhere and was also able to do his Seder, you know, before the 14th of Nisan, 15th of Nisan. And, uh, you know, just things like that were the essence of Hashem permeating who he is. You know, it's just kind of one of those things where the, the whole time and space thing, it's, it's different. You know, he walked on water. He was able to, supernaturally get them to places you know quicker you know 
Yeah, that the the donkey, the Kamor and Comer thing is just that speaks to that, you know. Which he was on the foal of a donkey. Like a grown man on this very fragile animal. <laughs> and yet it carried his weight. It carried him. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I used to think that. about that, what that looked like, because basically his feet would drag the ground. You know, it'd have to be a slower moving pace. I mean, it literally looks like, why is this grown man on this donkey? Like, poor little thing, kind of, you know, because it's not the normal size, not the standard size, Jude. You know, yeah. it's just crazy. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Go. Um, see. Okay. If someone approaches too closely to the temple over and beyond what his station in life entitles him to, he is liable to be hurt or even killed when he beholds what is not is to behold. What was I quoting earlier from Shmuel 6? The Beshemite? Wow. So the Ark has the same conditions as the temple? Yes. Are you serious? Right here, man. <laughs> Bro. We have explained this in connection with the death of the two sons of Aharon, Nadab and Abihu, who were described as having approached the presence of God by Eber 16.1. The Torah did not choose to say Beha uh, Kribam, how it's pronounced, which would have meant when they offered a sacrifice. The expression the Torah uses indicates that these sons entered an area that was beyond their station in life. As a result, they died. Something similar occurred when the people who wanted to behold God at the Krivrot Atao, according to an explanation given in the book, Brit Manukah, uh, we should learn from this that one must not attempt to occupy the position of someone who is greater than oneself in the presence of that personage. And what does Yeshua say concerning those who exalt themselves and those who humble themselves? Yeah. And Korach trying to take the gadol of Moshe uh -huh. in Moshe's presence. Man. You know, if you're invited to a feast and you sit in the uppermost seat, and when the the host says, uh, "You need to sit down there," that's embarrassing. <laughs> that's like a double. Rather take the lowest seat. Yeah. And the master of the house will come. Oh, hey, what are you doing over here? I know you. Okay, come on, sit up here, man. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's th right here. Uh, you will not be able to maintain such a posture. You are therefore well advised not to abandon your present place. You should remember that the Jewish people numbered 600,000 
and the Kabbalists say that they were 600,000 souls who had originated in the 600,000 letters of the Torah. The spirituality of Torah consists of the souls of Israel, and thus it is appropriate that the generation who received the Torah consisted of 600,000 souls. All subsequent generations and their souls are to be viewed as branches. Oh, man, and this is exactly what the Arizal says concerning Moshe. Exactly what Mashiach told us. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You're the branches. Without me, you, you can't do anything. Without the 600,000 souls, branches, you got no roots. And I, here's the thing, 11. I know Yosef's going to go with that Korach was a Zadik. Mm -hmm. What he's going to bring tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I submit that Korach is a Zadik only to the point where he broke his connection to the Zadik that is Moshe. Mm. And contended with him. Which you're allowed to do at your own demise, obviously. But Yeah, we all have the choice, you know? Yeah. I, I was pointing out in the group when you posted that one article, I think, mm -hmm. where I replied, you know, that Quark had the choice of not starting a Makloka with Moshe. Because right. that Makloka was definitely not for the sake of heaven. Because he was mm -hmm. looking for personal honor. Yep. Yeah, see, all subsequent generations and their souls are to be viewed as branches of those 600,000 souls. This raises the obvious question of where the souls of the Levites originated, since the number 600,000 had already been used up when the other tribes were counted. Was not the tribe of Levi the choicest of them all? Where did their souls emanate from? Remember that the first of the 13 principles used for exegesis of the Torah is the principle of uh, called a uh, paret. In our daily recitation of these 13 principles, this one is listed as number four. We are told there that the kalal general rule cannot include anything which has not been alluded to in the description of the uh, Peret, the detailed example of what is meant by Kalel. It is common knowledge that these 13 principles are not something conjured up by human intelligence, but they are principles by which God operates both in areas visible to us, uh, uh, i.e. Uh, negala, and in domains that are completely hidden from us. Oh, uh, like uh, Noga. Uh, Nest, uh, Nestor. Nestor, the conceal. Yeah. The overriding rule to remember is that Kalel, whole, does not contain anything which is totally foreign to the, the Perret part. When it is part of the Perret, it is uh, uh, Nigla, revealed visible, whereas when it is part of the kolel, it may remain hidden, invisible to our eyes or faculties. So this is why you have the hidden Torah and you have the revealed. The written and the oral. This is why you study Talmud. This is exactly why you've got to study the words of the sages. Otherwise, a lot of, a lot of what you see in the Torah, you're not going to understand it. It's the gatekeeper thing again. 
you know, can we just shout out Strictly Tour like we always do? Uh-huh. Because sometimes you get into this thing where you're studying and you're just like, hmm, I wonder about this. Or, oh, my goodness, this was so amazing. I just can't hold it in. I got to share it. And this is the beauty of that. You know, when you have things that you can't understand or to make sure your understanding's on the right track or to create more connections with other people who are doing this, you know, this is why you have groups like that. You should have people that you can chat with, you know, when you come across something or when you need help with something or if you're just, you know, throwing things out there in the air to to kind of get thoughts going, you know, because sometimes you just sit, you read something, you're just like you just sit and you literally ruminate on it. You're just like, hmm, this is interesting, you know, and you're just like, okay, let me share this with someone. Let's see what they think. You know, and based off of what they're thinking about, you learn something. So anyway, strictly Torah on Telegram. It's a get you some group. <laughs> yep, and then some <laughs> right. A whole lot more. <laughs> uh, our sages when discussing aspects of Ma'ase Bayrashit. The work of creation have already said with regard to the creation of the physical universe that every little detail that would ultimately be revealed was already part of the matter created on the first day. Get a load of that. That's what I've been saying all along. There's your proto-molecule. Those first seven words of the Torah all the days of the week. You have you have Ain Sof. And then he begins to reveal himself by creating time, Rashid, the head. And then Ashabayim, the heavens, the physical universe that you see, the stars, all the nebula, the planets, everything. Yeah. And then the earth. Time, space, and matter. In those first seven words. But before anything was. He. And notice how it goes from spiritual to physical and back to spiritual and physical together. And notice you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Because <laughs> to forget the physical is to over spiritualize everything. Because the physical is a shadow pointing to him who spoke it, Baruch Shayamar. <laughs> that was nice. That was nice. Which, by the way, the word Amar is the word is one of the words that's used for the oracles of God that the tor- the uh, the Jews are given in the Romans passage you cited. They have and been given if you read Mark. the Hebrew Brit Hadashah or Apostolic writings, you would see that word in Acts seven. Oh yeah. Wonder what this one says. When Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin.
Did you want to read more, Shanae? Luke, oh, yeah, I'll keep on. Let's see. Uh, yeah, as creation preceded these various paratim uh, details were revealed and became functional day after day. Rashi has explained all this in his commentary on Genesis 1.14 and 1.24. Philosophers call this first physical existence, he yuli, the world's raw material. All other elements are derived from that matter called he yuli. The Kabbalist rabbis say that the letters were in the beginning viscous, like molten rock. Oh, the, yeah, the viscous you were talking about? Yeah. And so that's what I'm thinking of when I see this word, he, you, lee. Something parallel happened in the celestial regions. The original cause, i.e. idea of God to create the universe is what we call the kolel. All other thoughts and plans of God are peritim, details, by comparison. Um, reminds me of a previous rumination. Uh, those who never say yes to the Almighty's commands can never expect to truly know his will. And considering that he spake everything into existence. We can view the 600,000 letters in the Torah in a similar manner. They are Heretim, whereas the 22 letters of the Hebrew Aleph Bet are Kalel. That, that this comparison is appropriate is demonstrated by the fact that all 600,000 letters or words in the Torah are merely a repetition or permutation of these 22 letters in the Aleph Bet. The 22 letters in the Aleph Bet in turn are Peritim of the basic letter Aleph. All letters have their origin in the letter Aleph and return to the letter Aleph. In this case, the letter Aleph stands for the word Aleph, 1000. Thus, we, we begin with the letters Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, etc. until we get to the letter Tav. This letter has a numerical value of 400, as we all know. The first of the final letters, the Kaf, Sophie, equals 500. The final mem, sofit equals 600. The final noon equals 700. The final pay equals 800. And the final zadi equals 900. After that, we are back to square one, i.e. the letter Aleph, or Aleph, 1,000. The number 1,000 is basically the same as the number one seeing that it differs only by the addition of zeros. Just as the letter Aleph is unique amongst the lesser units up to 1,000, so the number 1,000 is unique amongst the numbers that are multiples of 1,000. This whole concept is reflected in the fact that the Levites who were counted amounted to precisely 22,000. As such, they are the Kalel to the 600,000 Israelites. The Israelites then are a pair of the Kalel called Levites. 
Aharon was not counted according to Rashi on Numbers 339, since there are dots over his name in that verse. This means that he was to the Levites as the Levites were to the remainder of the Israelites, i.e. Kolel to the Peret. Because Kolel, you add up to three in Gematria. Yeah, just as Israel is to, this, to the land, the physical, so is Shabbat to time. All this is very similar to the way we have described Israel as the secret dimension of Nefesh, the Levites as the secret dimension of Ruach, and the priests as the secret dimension of Neshama, in our commentary on the first verse of Parashiot of the Book of Numbers. When the Torah instructs the giving of a tithe of 10% to the Levites, and in turn the giving to the priests, of a tithe of that 10% by the recipients of the first 10%, i.e. the Levites, we are confronted with the relationships of 1, 10, 100, or 2, 20, 200, respectively, by the priest receiving one out of the original 100, it becomes clear that he is the Kalel of the Levites and Israelites, respectively, our varying kinds of peret, that relationship is similar to the relationship of neshama to nefesh, etc. It was a Levite's task to stand guard outside the tabernacle, whereas, whereas the guard duty inside the precincts of the tabernacle was performed by the priest. The reason that um, czar, non-priest or Levite, was not allowed to perform service in the tabernacle was simply that the cause must not be confused with the effect since it is not his assigned place. Conversely, a priest must not perform his duties outside the tabernacle since that too is not the place assigned, assigned to him. And it would, it would not benefit his position in the scheme of things. I lowly Kavodo. The definition of what is Kutz La Makomo, outside one's assigned place, is twofold. One, one is that one must not physically step outside the area assigned to one to perform one's duties, meaning that. Because the clan of Kohat had the responsibility of carrying the ark, they could not step outside that boundary. The way Yitzhak couldn't step outside the boundary of Eretz Israel. Yeah. Or the boundaries of the duty that has been handed to you, or that which you have been entrusted with, to carry the ark, the holiest object, which everyone is still looking for, by the way. <laughs> Um, the other is that one must not enter the Holy of Holies, i.e. enter the inner sanctum. This is the meaning of Koholet 10.4, do not leave your place. Therein lies the secret of why the priest must not perform the duties of the Levite or vice versa. The priests are the more important ones. Their position is 
vis-a-vis. The Levites is like that of the firstborn in an ordinary family. Uh, the word bakor, firstborn, carries a connotation of gedulah, greatness, distinction, as we know from Af-Ani, bakor, et uh, nahu. I too will appoint him as firstborn, highest of the kings of the earth, Psalm 89, 28. To signify that they occupied this position, they were awarded the firstborn of the pure animals born to other tribes. This is also why the silver for redeeming the firstborn sons was awarded to them. The Levites were the redemption for the firstborn Israelites in accordance with their number. The underlying secret dimension of the principle of the relationship of Kalal and Paret is the principle governing the relationship of cause and effect or creator and creature. These relationships must not be reversed. It is interesting that in the Talmud in Kulin 133 tells us that the 24 portions that have been assigned to the priest are all based on the principle of Kolel Ve Paret. And that he who observes the covenant of the salt is considered as having observed the principle of Kolel Ve Paret, whereas he who fails to observe it is as if he had violated the principle of Kolel Ve Paret. I have explained elsewhere the deeper meaning of the relationship of Kolel and Paret. The 24 gifts that are assigned to the priest correspond to the 24 books of the Bible. The Torah in its entirety, the 24 books of the Bible, is the soul of the Jewish nation, and the priests represent the neshama of that nation. The written Torah with its 600,000 letters represents the Kolel, whereas the 24 books represents the Peret in that combination. The covenant of salt symbolizes the attribute of peace, of which Aharon was the foremost exponent, since he has been described by our sages as being Ohev Shalom, Dodef Shalom, a lover and active searcher for peace. I vote one, two. It is well known fact that the lower waters complained about having been relegated from the upper waters, second day of creation, and that in order to pacify them, God ordered the ceremony, Nasuk uh, Hamayim, the libations of waters which were offered on the altar during the festival of tabernacles to compensate them. Numbers 29, 16. There's the mystical aspect of the water libations. Rabbi Eliyahu Mizraki explains that salt is only congealed water, hence water and salt are viewed as identical. This helps explain the Rashi we quote in the next paragraph. Rashi explains on Leviticus 2.13 that salt which was offered with every sacrifice is an expression of this covenant made between God and the lower waters which had been separated from their counterparts. Since all the ways of Torah are pleasantness, Proverbs 3.17, it is only natural that the priests and the Levites were charged with instructing the people. They shall teach your social laws to Jacob and your Torah to Israel, Deuteronomy 33.10. We find that Korach 
quarreled with the priest and the Levites. He was jealous of Elisaphan, son of Uziel, having been appointed to the position of prince of the Levites and of Aharon having been appointed high priest. The 250 men who supported him all violated the principle of trying to usurp the superior positions occupied by others. As we have already explained, this is similar to the rabbis saying that that in uh, Kagiga 13, that which is too difficult for you, do not investigate. And that which is concealed from you, do not seek it out. Oh, just like I was saying at the opening of our podcast, the, the, the Agata, that is the gatekeepers. This is right. exactly what I'm See, <laughs> and, and this and this daff immediately precedes Kagiya 14. And what did we find there? Oh, yeah, the, the four who went into part is, yep, and only Rabbi Akiva came out unscathed right. and in peace. Did you hear about the wealth of Yosef, the one third portion that Korak got from him from the treasury? Oh, no, I actually haven't. Yeah, so Baal in his opening on Pasha Korak goes into the one-third of Yosef's treasury that Korak actually took when they were leaving Mitzrayim. And Yosef, we know, like, ma major wealth. So a third of what he had, Korak took that. So a lot of what he was doing was using things that were completely out of alignment. And, you know, you think about what wealth does to a person who's completely in love and saturated with that, you know, the materiality that would ensue, which is why he dressed up in the all blue to you know, and went before Moshe and had everybody else that way. And they made cake for everybody to do all of their um, recruiting throughout the night as opposed to sleeping it off and thinking about their actions, you know? So they're cooking food for people. They're, you know, doing all these different things to combat Hashem. And it's all about going into places where you should not be going. Yeah, it's just like I've been reading here. Yeah, so... You know, it's What's interesting is the Arizal's comment on the Perik, Baikach Korach, because he says that Korach took the 308 evil sparks from King to himself. Yeah. So the Amahu monk says here, we would have expected the Torah to write by Iku. They took. Another difficulty is the expression uh, Kiri'i Me'od on Sheishem, men who have been appointed, men of distinguished reputation, Bamibar 16.2. Why would these men be mentioned favorably when the Tosafot, Talmud Shabbat 12, says that Shevna, a man from Jerusalem, etc. Rabbanu Tam crosses out the title, a man from Jerusalem, 
or omits his name altogether of this man, seeing he was a confirmed sinner, and we do not dignify such sinners by mentioning their titles or even their names. We have a tradition that the name of sinners should rot, Mishle 7.10, based on Yoma 38. Even according to the view of Rabbi Yitzhak cited there, that if, say, a sinner is called Avraham, we, uh, we surely cannot stop calling everybody Avraham on account of one sinful Avraham. At the very least, such a person should not be accorded his title. Here the Torah seems to go out of its way to describe how these people had earned their titles. Moreover, in Sanhedrin 110, we are told that these men had outstanding abilities, knowing when to add an extra month to the calendar, etc. As it says there, the expression Anshay Shem means that their reputation was international. Another problem is that Rashi writes that the prince, Elitzer ben Shaday Ur, and some of his associates of the tribes of Reuben, was one of those 250 men. Rabbanu Bakia writes on this subject that even the princes who had offered the 12 offerings described in Parashat Naso were part of the 250 men. Our Savior's no. brothers. <laughs> Seriously? Like the whole end of Parashat Naso? Yeah, I'll read it again. Okay. Rabbanu Bakia writes on this subject that even the princes who had offered the 12 offerings described in Parashat Naso were part of the 250 men. But I'm just saying this, everything that you're reading is, is showing us the capabilities that we all have, no matter how close we get to Hashem. You can carry the ark, you can bring dedication offerings you know but yet you can still in your own mind devise up a plan to rebel against Hashem yeah which brings me <laughs> Tanya chapter 1 or Likute Amarim it has been taught in Nida 3 an oath is administered to him before birth warning him be righteous and be not wicked and even if the whole world tells you that you are righteous, regard yourself as if you were wicked. This requires to be understood, for it contradicts the Mishnic, the Mishnaic dictum about chapter 2. And be not wicked in your own estimation. Furthermore, if a man considers himself to be wicked, he will be grieved at heart and depressed and will not be able to serve God joyfully and with a contented heart. While if he is not perturbed by this self-appraisal, he may lead him to irreverence, God forbid. However, the matter will be understood after a preliminary discussion. We find in the Gemara five distinct types, a righteous man who prospers, a righteous man who suffers, a wicked man who prospers, a wicked man who suffers, and an intermediate one, Benoni. It is therefore explained. 
that righteous man who prospers is the perfect sadiq. The righteous man who suffers is the imperfect sadiq. And Ra'aya Mahema Parashat Mishpatim, it is explained that the righteous man who suffers is one whose evil nature is subservient to his good nature, and so on. In the Gemara in chapter 9 in Barakot, it is stated that the righteous are motivated by their good nature and the wicked by their evil nature, while the intermediate man, men are motivated by both, by both, and so on. Rabbah declared, I, for example, am a Benoni. Said Abahi to him, Master, you do not make it possible for anyone to live, and so on. Nice. About Korach, you know. To understand all the aforesaid clearly, an explanation is needed, as also to understand what Job said, Baba Batra chapter uh, 1, Lord of the universe, you have created righteous men, and you have created wicked men. For it is not preordained whether a man will be righteous or wicked. It is also necessary to understand the essential nature of the rank of the intermediate. Surely that cannot mean that one whose deeds are half virtuous and half sinful. For if this were, so how could Rabbah err in classifying himself as a Benoni? For it is known that he never ceased studying the Torah, so much so that the angel of death could not overpower him. How then could he err to have half of his deeds sinful? God forbid. You know, had Korah kept this in mind, kept his nose in the Torah, he would have stayed the angel of death that day. And perhaps even those 250 men would have been spared. Think mm -hmm. about all the Torah Kakam that could have come from those 250 men. Right. Because ultimately, this goes back to the garden. The souls that could have come from heaven. Exactly. But instead, the parents had to do a kind of a, a proto-yaboom. Uh, wow. And it's the same with uh, Noah as well. When Ham walked in on him. Wow. When he was drunk. And then 10 generations later with uh, Terak and his three sons, Abraham. Mm-hmm. Around and um, what was the other one? Um, uh, I have to go look it up again. <laughs> but the point being is that Haran, who, he was originally married to Sarai, but he died young. They died without without children. So Abraham, in a act of proto yaboom took Sarai and married her. Nahor. Yeah, Nahor, yeah. And what's interesting is that in the incident with Noah and his three sons is that you see the word Shem there, which is name in Hebrew, 
and in the subsequent verses, you see the separation of, those, of the sheen and the mem, Sophie. But when you come to the Yaboom with Abraham, you see the name come back together. Yeah. See, furthermore, at what stage can a person be considered a Benoni if when a man commits sins, he is deemed completely wicked, but when he repents afterward, he is deemed completely righteous? Even he who violates a minor prohibition of the rabbis is called wicked, as it is stated in Yevamo chapter 2 and in Nida chapter 1. Moreover, even he who has the opportunity to forewarn another against sinning and does not do so is called wicked, uh, Shavuot 6. All the more so, he who neglects any positive law which he is able to fulfill, for instance, whoever is able to study Torah and does not. Regarding whom our sages have quoted, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, that soul shall be utterly cut off. And it is thus plain that such a person is called wicked more than he who violates a prohibition of the rabbis. If this, were, if this is so, we must conclude that the intermediate man, Benoni, is not guilty of even of the sin of neglecting the study of Torah. Hence, Rabbah could have mistaken himself for a Benoni. And as for the general saying that one whose deeds and misdeeds are equally balanced, is called Benoni, while he whose virtues outweigh his sins is called a Zadik. This is only the figurative use of the term in regard to reward and punishment, because he is judged according to the majority of his acts, and he is deemed righteous in his verdict, since he is acquitted in law. But concerning the true definition and quality of the distinct levels and ranks, righteous and intermediate men, our sages have remarked that the righteous are motivated solely by their good nature. As it is written, my heart is a void within me. That is void of an evil nature because he, David, had slain it through fasting. But whoever has not attained this degree, even though he, his virtues exceed his sins, cannot at all be reckoned to have ascended to the rank of the righteous, Zadik. That is why our sages have declared in the, mis in the Midrash, the Almighty saw that the righteous were few, so he planted them in every generation. For it is written, the Zadik is the foundation of the world. The explanation of the questions raised above is to be found in the light of what Rabbi Kaim Vital wrote in Sha'ar HaKedushah and in Etz Kaim. Portal 50, chapter 2, that in every Jew, whether righteous or wicked, are two souls, as it is written. The Neshamot, which I have made, alluding to two souls, there is one soul which originates in the Klippa and the Sitra Akra, and which is clothed in the blood of a human being, giving life to the body, as it is written, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. From it stem all evil characteristics deriving from the four evil elements which are contained in it. These are anger, pride, which emanate from the element of fire, 
the nature of which is to rise upwards, the appetite for pleasures from the element of water, for water makes to grow all kinds of enjoyment, frivolity and scoffing, boasting and idle talk. What you were bringing up earlier about mocking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I like the mention of the fire and the water right there because the month of Nisan is, I believe, the month of fire. Yeah, because we have fire, earth, wind, and then this month is water. So the fire of Pesach getting us to the water of Tammuz and the fire and the water are related. The fire ascends, the water comes down. And so remember the whole goal of Moshe coming back with the tablets was to bring it down, bring everything down, and then we would go out. Which is really what the water is going to do in the third temple anyway, because it's going to come down, flow out from the throne and go out and purify all the waters of the world. That's interesting because some Kabbalists say that the temple, the third temple will be water. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Here. Uh, so this is all Shanae Luko, and you're just. I'm reading from the Tanya. Oh, that's the Tanya part. Okay. Yeah. Because what he was bringing up, you know, led me to grab this because it to bring more uh, elucidation on this. Um, so um, back here, let's see. In the element of water, for water makes to grow all kinds of enjoyment, frivolity, scoffing, boasting, and idle talk. From the element of air and air and sloth and melancholy, from the element of earth, from this soul stem also the good characteristics which are to be found in the innate nature of all Israel, such as mercy and benevolence. For in the case of Israel, this soul of the klipa is derived from the klipat, noga, which also contains good, as it originates in the esoteric tree of knowledge of good and evil. The souls of the nations of the world, however, emanate from the other unclean klipot, which contain no good whatever, as it is written in Etzkaim Portal 49, Chapter 3, that all the good that the nations do is done from selfish motives. Hmm. So the Gemara comments on the verse, the kindness of the nations is sin, that all the charity and kindness done by the nations of the world is only for their own self-glorification, and so on. And quote, he's quoting the Gemara in Avodah Zera. Yeah. But yeah, so and then he goes on. Um, yeah, what Rabbi and I Bakya said in there, man, about <laughs> the princes who offered the 12 offerings, man. That is like. <laughs> I should yeah, drop we that. were. I should we probably drop that in the group. 
Yeah, we were talking about the beware you stand lest you fall verse. Yeah, or every man's work will be tried. Shaul yeah. Corinthians. Yeah, and it just seems like Mehalotka, um, Parsha Shlach, you know, and then we have this Parsha Korach, you know, then coming up with Hukat and Pinchas, you know, or I mean Balak and then Pinchas, you know, it's just like these continued testings of fire. Yeah, I mean, the. Yeah, all these parachute, man, it's like, I mean, typically, you know, summertime, we tend to think of leisure activities, yeah. and doing things we like to do, and what we tend to forget is that we still need to be about the Father's business. Yeah, that was That's a funny that. thing Rabbi Chugman brought down, too, because he's like, normally you think summer, school's out, it's time to go on vacation. And it's like, mm, no, we're about to go into some fast days. About to do three weeks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's intense. Yeah, the minute to moves hits, man. The first thing I'm thinking about is Bainham and Serene. Yep. But did the you know that, that the uh, the Declaration of Independence was signed on the 17th of Tammuz? I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. That, that, that's just grabs you, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just crazy. But yeah, I just I love the the tapping into the potential of what we have this month, and I think that is huge for all of us to really go into that. You know, we had a former member of our Mishpaka who, um, before they left, was telling us that you know. Um, we have got to get to a place of crying, mourning, and yearning for what we don't have, not for what we lost. Which is like getting over the threshold into where we should be, because there is a measure of tears that are required for us to get to temple. Yeah. You know, and we should understand. We should have already had this. So. Yeah. A um, couple of verses quoted at the end of this rumination uh, that I got the Fei Tang up. Okay. Um, they gathered together against Moshe and now Haron and said, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy. That's a, that's a correct statement. From Korach. The congregation mm -hmm. is whole. Yeah. Every one of them. The problem I have with it is he's playing the congregation against Moshe and Aharon. Yeah. This is not and a holiness is, issue. <laughs> yeah. It's not a holiness issue. Yeah. No. And Hashem is among them. You know, I think. Korach, see, I get this impression, the way the Torah phrases it, is that Korach is not fully aware of the Shekinah. The consequence of that statement. Right. And also that he's forgetting that you were entrusted to carry the ark. 
your clan. The Kohathites. Yep. You have a role. Yeah, and you're disregarding it. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the Kohal? He's all too eager to point out the imperfections in someone else. Mm -hmm. Where in fact he should be. This is a lesson for us. Look at yourself. The sages say, don't judge a man unless you walked in and shoes. Take the log out of your eye. I, yep. Or you take the plank out of someone else. And then you will see clearly enough. For you exalt yourselves above the kahal assembly of Hashem. That's an important word, kahal assembly. Yeah. There's only one assembly. As right. We, as we discussed last week. Previous rumination. And then, so that's number 16.3. And he, Mashiach, is the head of the body, the assembly, Kahal, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Colossians 1.18. He's the head of all. It is to him that we are subservient. And I'm reminded of the uh, Orkayim statement regarding the everything is subordinate to the Shekinah. So, yeah, th that's, you know, Men, I, I see a lot of pastors drawing men after themselves, looking for the praise of men, the honor of men, rather than that of Hashem. And then draw and making disciples and getting them attached to Mashiach, the righteous one, the Zadik. Yeah, because they're attaching people to themselves. Yeah, and ultimately that's a form that's idolatry because I hear my wife and I have heard too many times congregants say, Oh, the pastor, he's so awesome. And this and that. That's idolatry. He's just a man. We're all just men. But Hashem has given us responsibilities, He's given us our place what we're supposed to carry. Like, we all have our own perspectives, you know? I mean, when we come together in the group, like on Zoom on Shabbat Eve, and we come with our own perspective, you know, that's our place that Hashem has put us in. And we need to honor that place and not step into someone else's place or step on someone else's perspective because that would be Lashon Haram. Mm -hmm. You know, and Korak didn't do any of that. He, had, he had just had no respect at all, you know. And he could have remained a Sadiq, you know, if he did not confront Moshe in the way that he did. Because he was not being subordinate to the Shekinah, especially since you carry the ark. 
the very representation of the throne of grace, which Aharon goes into once a year, the Yom Kippur service, mm-hmm. to atone for the, the Mishkan, the priesthood, and everybody else. So, you know, you know, the way that, you know, the way that Torah tells us, you know, it seems that he ignored all of that because he's only concerned about his own personal honor. Because those who follow after the Yetzirah, they lead people away. Yeah, they want, they want justification for their sin and say, hey, you know what, you need to stand with me. That's what religions do. They, they, they just keep drawing people to themselves. Oh, you need to be a soul winner. And that's where you have your seeker-friendly places. Yep, you got the secret handshake going. You know, okay, so now you're a card-carrying, paying member. You know, that's never. That's not the. That's not a principle of the Torah, not at all. Um. But anyway, Tafei Tang has always mm-hmm. crazy gematria. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh boy. Korak, the secret of the priesthood. Just like Shlach Kodesh here, getting into the secret. Um, and like I said, he has his perspective too, you know. See, Korak contested the priesthood of Aharon with the following famous statement, Ki Kol. Uh, Ida, Kulam, uh, Kedoshim, Ube Tokam, Adonai. According to Arizal, the Korak statement is correct, except the time has not fully come as it is written. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. According to Arizal, the secret of this verse is about Korach, who is considered a Zadik, the righteous in the future. Not for his rebellion, but rather for his statement that the entire congregation is holy. This is because the final three letters, Zadik, Katamar, Yiparach, spell Korach, Kuf, Resh, Het. And the average number of the verse is 1,848 divided by six is 308. The Gematria for Korach. The entire congregation is holy. Why is it that the priesthood was given to the sons of Aharon? This is exactly Korach's challenge to Moshe. It is well known that the children of Israel were divided into three categories. Uh, Kohen has a gematria of 80, uh, Levi has a gematria of 51, and Bey Yisrael has a gematria of 547, totaling 678, which is exactly the gematria of Kohaida Kulam Kedoshim. And all the congregation is holy. Which is okay, the argument. so this is the one you sent me. You sent me that phrase. Yeah. The 678. Okay. Yeah which is the argument of Korach 
meaning the divisions of the priests, the levy, and Israel is a temporary solution to the sin of the golden calf. And the original plan is the kingdom of priests for the entire congregation as it is written to Be'atim, Tehu, Li, Mimaleket, Kohanim, and you shall be, a, be to me a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19.6. This pre-Arionic priesthood was prototyped prototyped in Melchizedek, who was called the priest of the Most High, Kohen Le'el Elyon, Genesis 14, 18, which is further revealed by King David as the eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek, Kohen Le'elam al Debarti Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. The Gematria, Kohen Le'el Elyon, is 302, Kohen Le'olam al uh, Dave, Dave Rati, 1261, Malchizedek. They all total uh, 1563, which is the gematria of the verse below concerning the promise of the king of priests, Exodus 19.6, which I read. This comes to teach us the pre-Arionic priesthood was the original plan which was intended for each one of the congregation exactly as Korah claimed, which is known as the Order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is called the King of Righteousness and King of Peace, Hebrew 7.2. The Hebrew phrase has a gematria of 750, exactly 10 times the gematria of Kohen, which is 75. Malchizedek, hmm. a gematria of 284, Malik Shalom, 466, 750. The prototype of Malchizedek was revealed as Mashiach's priesthood in heaven, Hebrews 8.3. The gematria of Mashiach Bashamayim is also 750. The secret of Selah. Parashat Korach is about the secret of priesthood. There are exactly 95 verses in the Parashat, and 95 is the Gematria of Selah, which is the secret of the kingdom of priests. Hmm. There are two primary divine names, the Yodke Vavke and the Yodke Yodke. According to Arizal, Yodke Vavke is of the order of this world, and Yodke Yodke is of the order of the next world. This world is the order of Aharon, and the next wor world is the order of Melchizedek. In the order of Aharon, the unification of the divine names, Yodke Vavke and Adonai, is known as Amen, which is used to conclude a blessing or a prayer. The gematria for both is 91, as follows. The divine name, 26, Adonai, 65, 91. It's the triangle number of 13, where 13 is the gematria of one, echad, i.e. the unification. In the Messianic age, the Yodke Bavke will be revealed as Yodke Yodke, in that the letter Bob will be elevated to Yod. Bob is the son, Yod is the father, 
this is well established as it is written, and the Lord, Behaya Adonai la Melech al Koha Aretz, Bayom Hahu Yiye Adonai Echad Ushemo Echad. From the Elenu. Yep, Zechariah 14.9. When Yodke Vavke is revealed as Yodke Yodke and unified with Adonai, the Gematria is 95, exactly the Gematria of Selah, which is the secret of Selah as follows. Yodke Yodke has a Gematria of 30, Adonai 65, 95. I'm thinking Psalm 95. For this reason, Parashah Korach has 95 verses alluding to the unification of Yodke, Yodke and Adonai in the secret of Selah, the order of Melchizedek, when the entire congregation is holy. Only then will the claim of Korach be true, but not before. The word Selah serves a similar function as Amen, which is used to conclude a blessing or prayer, which appears 71 times in the Psalms and three times in Habakkuk for a total of 75 times, which actually less one. And 75 is the Gematria of Kohen, priest. This one's interesting. Amen appears 33 times. And Selah appears 75 times. Uh, I'm thinking 33, which is a reminder of, uh, was it um, Lagba Omer? Right. And 75 less one in the Hebrew Bible. If Selah were to appear 75 times, the union of Amen. And Selah would be 33 plus 75 equals 108, which is exactly the gematria of Yiye Adonai Echad, meaning Yorke, Babke, and Adonai is one. <clears throat> this comes to teach us that the word Selah is meant to appear 75 times, albeit it appears 74 times in the Hebrew Bible. The missing one is the secret that is yet to be revealed to complete the priesthood known as. Uh, Divrati Malkisedek. The gematria of this phrase is 910, which is exactly 10 times of Amen. The secret of Selah can be revealed by its three possible spellings out as follows. A spelled out. Samek Lamed, A, 200. A spelled out with a He. Samek Lamed, A, 204. A spelled out with a Yod, Samek, Lamed, A, 209, total 613. Alludes to the 613 commandments of Torah, which will be fully revealed in the Messianic age. <clears throat> the spelling out of Amen has a gematria of 297 as follows. Amen spelled out with Aleph, is 297, and the union of Amen spelled out and Selah spelled out is 613 plus 297 equals 910. 910 is the gematria of Amen 91 times 10. 
This comes to teach us that Amen culminates in union with Selah, which is the same gematria of uh, Devrati Malkizedek, as it is written, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4. This comes to teach us that the order of Melchizedek is of a higher order and will be revealed with the unification of Yodke, Yodke, and Adonai in the secret of Selah. The spelling out of Yodke, Yodke, and Yodke Vavke is one, and Gematria is 1075 as follows. Giye uh, Adonai Echad, spelling out Yodhe, Yodhe, and then Yodhe Vavhe, Aleph Ta, uh, Het, Dalet. All equal 1075 is exactly the gematria of Israel spelled out as follows, which is Yod, Shin, Resh, Aleph, Lamed, 1075. This comes to teach us that in the Messianic age, according to the secret of Selah, Israel will, will reign with Mashiach as kings and priests, Revelation 510 in order to fulfill the promise of the kingdom of priests in the order of Melchizedek. Finally, Selah in Atbash is Het, Het Kaf uh, Zadi Sophie. The Gematria is 118. The Gematria of High Priest uh, Kohen Gadol. Selah in Albam is Dalet Aleph Ayin. The Gematria is 75, the Gematria of Priest, Kohen. It is clear that the secret of Selah is the secret of Priest. Aaron's Rod. The budding rod symbolizes the resurrection from the dead. I think that's pretty huge. In the same way Aharon's priesthood was confirmed by the dead rod that budded, so was Mashiach's priesthood confirmed by the resurrection from the dead. And it shall come to pass that the man whom I shall choose, his rod shall bud. His rod shall bud, Matehu, Ephrak, Egematria is 358. The Gematria for Mashiach. The budding of all three stages according to number 17a. Harak, flower 288. Zitz, bud 190. That word should be familiar. Zitz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Shekedim, almonds. 454, 932 altogether. This is exactly the gematria of tree of knowledge. Et Hence, the burning rod symbolizes the tree of life, which is the rectification of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
Mashiach is the tree of life who is called at the simple level the tree of, of the field. Ki ha'adam etz ha'sade. For man is the tree of the field. Devarim 2019. Mashiach is called trunk of Jesse. Beyadza Kotair. Mikaza Yishe. Veynetzer. Mi Sharashav. Ifre. And there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, and a twig shall grow forth out of his roots, Isaiah 11.1. 1. Mashiach is also called the root of Jesse. Vehayah bayom hahu sharesh yishe asher omed lanes amim elav goim yadar Yaderesh u ve peta menukato kavo, and it shall come to pass in that day that the root of Jesse that stands for an ensign of the peoples unto him shall the nation seek, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah eleven ten. Root grows into trunk, trunk grows into branch, and branch grows into flower and fruit. Sharesh root. Shoresh, root, 800. Uh, Getzah, trunk, 80. Uh, Anaf, branch, 200. Perach, 288, flower. And Pri, fruit, 290. Total, 658, which is exactly the name of Yeshua revealed progressively and regressively as follows. Yeshua, Revealing and concealing, Yod, Yesh, Yeshu, Yeshua, Yeshu, Yesh. Progress, uh, revealing. You're writing one letter. Mm -hmm. And then it's concealing. You're subtracting a letter. 1658. The five parts, i.e. root, trunk, branch, flower, fruit, at the collective level is called a tree. The gematria of tree X is 160, hence 1,658 parts plus 160 whole is 1,818, which is exactly the word Mashiach revealed progressively and regressively. As follows, same thing. Mem, Mem Shin, Mem Shin Yod, Mem Shin Yod Het. And then Mem Shin Yod and Mem Shin, and then Mem. This comes to teach us that the budding rod of Aharon symbolizes the resurrection of Yeshua HaMashiach from the dead. Secret of the priesthood. Priest is called Kohen in Hebrew. The word has three letters. The first two letters are the Kaf and the He, meaning this meaning this, corresponding to the lower level of prophecy when the vision is not clear. The gematria is 25. The final letter is a noon, 
the gematria is 50, corresponding to the 50 gates of understanding, i.e. clear vision. Hence, Kohen represents the progression of prophecy from translucency to transparency, the secret part. Uh, Peret, the word that the <coughs> Shlach Kodesh, uh, Eliyahu, Mark's been using. Right. Yep. Um, same, same thing, revealed parts of the whole. And the whole 50, for 25 is exactly half of 50. Priesthood in Hebrew is Kohanim. The Gematria is 125, which is five to the third power. Aharon and his sons were given the priesthood after the sin of the golden calf, rabbinical. But paradoxically, Aharon was the prime suspect for the molten calf, as we know, which in Hebrew is uh, ego uh, masaka. The word for molten masaka has a gematria of 125 as the priesthood kohanim. For Aharon was given the priesthood because of the molten calf. Interesting. The final two letters of Maseka share the same two letters, Ko, of priest, Kohen. The level of clouded prophecy remaining gematria for priest is 50, which is twice the gematria of 25. And the remaining gematria for molten is 100, which is twice the gematria of 50, as follows. Masake, molten, Kohen, priest, 50, 25, 100. Six is the number of Olam Haze. Seven is the number of Messianic age. Eight is the number of Olam Haba. And nine is the number of truth. This is well established elsewhere. Israel in ordinal number is 64, which is two to the sixth power. High priest, Hakohen Gahagadol, and Gematria is 128, which is two to the seventh power. Aharon and Gematria is 256, which is two to the eighth power. You know, all those numbers are storage equivalents used in computers. Hmm. Okay. So what's the significance of that? Oh, uh, look, uh, hold on one more. <laughs> and Mashiach of the living God, Mashiach Elohim, Kaim, is 512. Another storage equivalent. Hmm. Which is two to the ninth power. That <laughs> That is interesting, man. <laughs> So what's the what's the storage thing it, though? It's like it's it's like the Kohen are storing the secrets of Selah of the kingdom. But like Daniel says, and they shall go to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. What are we doing right now? Increasing knowledge. Going to yes. and fro, and where are we storing all of this? A lot of this electronically. All the books you I download in Kindle, I'm storing on here. 
and I have a 512 gigabyte flash storage on my MacBook Pro. Yeah. You know, and what I I assume you're using an iPad or a laptop or. No, it's not iPhone. Is it your iPhone? And well, you like to have 64 gigs of storage or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there you go. It's like we're drashing back and forth. We're storing all this on our devices, which comes from the earth. And the earth is Hashem's and everything that's in it. So th there's a progression. Oh, yeah. See, the progression of ascent is clear from the opacity of the common Israel. The prophecies, prophecies advance to the level of the high priest in general and Aharon in particular at the level of translucency until it culminates at the level of transparency by Mashiach in the order of Melchizedek. See, like what you read earlier about the specifics of the order of Melchizedek and what is required for Yeshua's priesthood is on a completely different order. But it still does not contradict the Torah because the Torah gives us the requirements for the Kohen Gadol. Right. Now the sin of the golden calf was rectified by Ehud ben Gera, who killed uh, Eglon. Yeah, Eglon. In Judges 3.14, this is because Eglon means the small calf, Egel. And Ben-Gurah has the same gematria 256 of Aharon. <clears throat> so Ehud symbolizes the son of Aharon that rectified the sin of Aharon by killing the small calf. Wow. <clears throat> Astonishingly, the gematria of the priestly family is designed to follow the formula of N to the fourth. Ehud, symbol, a symbolic of son of Aharon, Ehud, 16.2 to the fourth, Nadab and Abihu, the two dead sons, 81.3 to the fourth, Aharon, 2.56, which is four to the fourth. <clears throat> they made the golden calf. They Asihu Ego Masika 625, which is five to the fourth. <clears throat> Aharon, Nadab, and Abihu, Eliezer, Itamar, 12,996, no, which is six to the fourth. Father and four sons. See, we can now understand this cryptic verse about the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is revealed in the book of Hebrews 7, verse 17, is the secret of the priesthood of Mashiach. The Lord has sworn, and I will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The gematria of this verse is 2,260, which is five times 452. And 452 is the gematria of Yeshua ben David, the name of Mashiach. Yeah, I remember that from Ben Burton. Oh, so. <clears throat> oh nice. The 452. Yeah. Now, the order of Melchizedek, Mashiach is called uh, Kohenu, 
our priest, which was a gematria of 141. 2,260 plus 141 equals 2,401, which is exactly the number seven to the fourth power. The priesthood next in line, following the formula of N to the fourth, as discussed above. <clears throat> if we take one step further and substitute Mashiach for the U in Psalm 110, verse 4, Mashiach is the priest forever. Mashiach Kohen Leolam al Divrati Malkizedek. The Gematria is six, 1619, which is the 257th prime number, with 256 being the Gematria of Aharon. It stands to reason that Mashiach, in the order of Malkizedek, the 257th prime number, is that which follows the order of Aharon, 256, for 257 follows 256 in order. And that is the Fei Tang. Secret of the priesthood. Uh, yep. And all this would be accessible if men would, and pastors and Christianity would. Stop denigrating the Torah and Moshe. Their, under, they, their understanding would be far better. But then again, that's where Hashem, that's the place that Hashem is bringing us to. A, continu right. a continual deeper understanding and appreciation for his word. Yeah. I mean, it, it not that it's recommendable or recommended, but it's good that we do have this obstacle to overcome in this generation because I always thought about the fact of how do you really know which people are truly for Hashem? And you'll know by the challenges people meet, you know, like, Either you stand up and step up to the plate or you don't, you know, kind of thing. And it's not to be, you know, harsh or rude on, on saying that. But, you know, if you really love Hashem, that love is so um, consuming that you do. You just you do things. You overcome, you know, people can tell you why. Why do Torah? You know, what benefit is it to you? You know, and you you overcome that. Uh, the significance of Yehoshua weakening Amalek with the sword. And we know what the sword is. You know, the ground swallowing up Korak and his followers. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Earth, uh, bearing witness to the sin of Korak, which, you know, he could have brought rectification for Adam Harishon. Yeah, you know, that's that's the other aspect, and the two hundred and fifty men. But no, th I think this is probably one of the reasons why the Torah tells us that the earth swallowed them up. 
because they refused to bring tikkun. They could have continued to be righteous men. As the Tanya says. Yeah. You know? So even if the whole world tells you you're righteous, regard yourself as wicked. I mean, don't be true of yourself until the day of your death. That's what our sages don't, say. Don't uh, be wise in your own understanding. You know, for knowledge, you know, makes one prideful. That shall we. All right. Rukashim. Well, that's plenty of rumination for today. So I would say so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, very, very good stuff. And it, again, just, we can't reiterate enough, you know, the way that things are, the way things have become because of exile, you know, and the whole uh, misunderstanding of the way everything is set up. You know, we do have a priesthood coming soon. We do have a king coming soon. You know, we will have a temple. We'll be back in unity with each other. Uh, with the proper understanding of all halakhic points, you know, that's coming, you know. So until then, we do the best with what we have, and then we try to get back to the, uh, the foundations, you know. And whatever that looks like, you know, you know, you have try to get help if you can, obviously, you know, but if you can't, you know, uh, there are so many resources available at the tips of our fingers. So the encouragement is the kingdom of Hashem is near. We're, we're almost done with exile. This is the final generation before Mashiach. So may we anticipate his arrival. Amen. All right. Would you like to do your bracha from the Ari? Okay. I thank you, Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established my portion with idlers. For I rise early, and they arise early. I rise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. I toil, and they toil. I toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. I run, and they run. I run to the life of the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days, but as for me, I will trust in you. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu torat emet, vechaye olam nata betocheinu. Baruch Ata Arunai Notain Hatora. Amen.